What's up, everybody? We're back. It's the goose is loose. Uh, here's what here's what happened. I did a season one of this show, and I forgot to keep dubbing them season one. So, if you go, if you're on Apple Podcasts, uh, you have to like scroll through the random ones to find the most recent ones uh, because I made that mistake. This one is going to be start of season two because I took such a long break. As you guys know, I took the bar exam. I passed the bar exam. I think I did one with Luke. Uh, after that, that's my most recent one. If you want to hear Luke and I uh, bagging on Republicans, you can go listen to that. His dad was very upset about that one. Um, this is the most recent one. I'm doing a show with two guys that I met through Luke, uh, mostly because I don't know anything about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I've been shouting this from the rooftops. If you only have an opinion, you're not really able to uh, commentate on something. And I really... Uh, well, before today, I've done a little bit of reading to be prepared for this. I really don't know anything about this. And um, I will say that some unsavory people side with Israel and some people I like uh, support Israel and some people I don't like support Palestine. So there's there's some people that I respect on both sides, good people on both sides, uh, some people would say. So I what I did was I did some research and I got these two guys to come on uh, as my guests. First time we're doing a roundtable, really, which is fun. And they're going to give us a um, – I'm going to go through a history of the conflict starting way back, starting at the very beginning. I'm going to go through this. We have eight points on this uh, on this article that I'm looking at that I found. I will share the article later on with everybody if you want to look at it yourself. And we're basically going to go through – they're going to see if we can get some – just a list of undisputed facts about what's what's happened so far. If we can get that, that would be awesome. And then we're going to go from there in a discussion. Um, fans of the ice will be very disappointed today. I'm drinking scotch. It's Glen Levitt 12 today. Um, there it is. Very sweet, honey-like. If you're a fan of scotch, that's a nice one. So my guest today is Wally and Daniel. Wally, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself first? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, Gustavo. Um, so my name is Wally. I uh, was an undergrad at UCLA, actually, with Daniel, uh, where we met each other. But uh, my own uh, sort of experience with Israel-Palestine, uh, just in general, came uh, as, a, as actually a student activist. So I participated in a lot of the Palestine activism that happened at UCLA, and I came to be uh, quite familiar with a lot of uh, the happenings, and in particular, um, sort of the, the, the sort of quote-unquote Palestine movement, I guess you could say, uh, among U.S.-based um, activists and whatnot. Um, so my involvement in that uh, came as a result of uh, me being the president of the Muslim Student Association uh, at the time at UCLA. So, uh, you know, Palestine is not only a Muslim issue by any means, uh, but there is a lot of, you know, crossover simply because it's Muslim majority. But, um, you know, there's a lot of implications in the discussions surrounding like Israel-Palestine stuff for like Islamophobia and uh, things of that nature. So I kind of got tangentially in, involved there. And I think, uh, you know, my opinions uh, certainly have been informed and educated I think throughout my participation in that, but I, I would like to think that I have a balanced perspective. Uh, that's, uh, you know, takes into account uh, quite a lot of stuff, but uh, Daniel and I, I mean, we go, we go back uh, way back, I guess, like to our UCLA days, but um, yeah, that's just a brief uh, introduction <laughs> for myself and my involvement. But oh, I should say uh, my, uh, after UCLA, I, I, I started working at uh, one of the LA based uh, big law firms and their uh, pricing and finance teams. So uh, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I do tell people how much lawyers cost. So that's like, <laughs> uh, my, my professional qualification doesn't actually have anything to do 
uh, with, you know, the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict, much like Daniels does. But um, yeah, so I just wanted to, you know, put that out there that I don't Fair work enough. in this space, but I, I am certainly like active and have participated. Yeah, well, I don't work yeah. in this space either. I don't work in actually any space that really matters about anything, but uh, I appreciate educated people. Uh, Daniel, why don't you go ahead? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I feel so much more honored now that I know this is the uh, first episode of season two. Uh, so <laughs> like, like Wally said, we met at UCLA in undergrad. I was really active in the wider Jewish community. And so we sort of uh, met each other through, I guess, the opposite sides of the uh, quote unquote activist line. Um, but we actually had, you know, a series of great conversations. We actually ended up co-writing an article together. I don't, I don't really, Ooh. I was looking for that and I couldn't find it, but um, you might yeah, have had after, to take it down or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm joking. I hardly remember myself. Go ahead, after sorry. undergrad at UCLA, I ended up going to rabbinic school. And then I also did a master's in Jewish history from UCLA. And I've been working in Orange County for the last four years as a rabbi, mostly on college campuses. So I've actually been involved in the Israel conversation on campus really for way too long. But I, I think it's been about 10 years now. Okay, this is a serious question, Daniel, and I apologize if this seems like a joke. Do people call you rabbi all the time? I, I definitely don't prefer people calling me rabbi, but it, okay. it definitely happens sometimes. But please call me Daniel. Okay, you don't want to be called rabbi. Not at all. Okay, I don't want to be disrespectful to you. <laughs> okay, so those are the introductions, folks. Um, it just dawned on me that there might be a strange cut around, and if we... Because we've been talking for 20 minutes before we started this podcast. Um, so there might be a strange cut if we go another 40 minutes. But don't worry about that. We'll cross that bridge if we get there. Okay, folks, this is what we're doing. So I spent about an hour looking for uh, some sort of objective feeling um, article that would give me a, a toenail, a toenail, a toehold on the history of the conflict. Because honestly, I, I don't know anything about this. And you, listener, might be surprised to hear me say that because it seems like I know a lot about a lot of things, but I do not know anything about this. So I found something that feels like it's objective. So there are eight key historical time periods in this conflict. Uh, and well, how we're going to do this is I'm going to go and kind of summarize the author's um, depiction of each time period as to things that I think are important. And it's, a, it's not a super long article. And like I said, you can see it for yourself uh, and I'll post it somewhere probably in the description of this podcast because we're relying so heavily on it. And Daniel and Wally, if they have a, a dispute with how this is written or what it implies or any of that, they will voice it. If not, they'll both say, no, that's, that sounds right. And we'll, we'll, we'll go along. And hopefully by the end of these eight key historical time periods, you and I will have a, a, a decent understanding enough so to discuss what's going on right now. Um, so let's get started. Okay, the first time period is uh, titled Earliest Jewish Settlement. This is the 19th century. Uh, basically, Palestine did not exist before the First World War. Okay, it was divided in the provinces by the Ottoman Empire and had actually had already a few Jewish inhabitants. Uh, the Jewish population was very small. It's about 3%. The majority were Arabs, mostly Sunni Muslims. Ba, ba, bum. Yeah, and that, that was basically what formed early Palestine, is the majority Sunni Muslims, about 3% Jews, um, and some Christians. So that's early day Palestine. 
And these were not farmers, they're not settlers, they're merchants and they're religious teachers. Um, this is an important note, I thought. European Jews were influenced by nationalism in Europe. And if you, if you, uh, if you know where this is going, nationalism in Europe uh, becomes a very bad thing in a few, in a few steps down the line here. Um, and now, now Daniel might have something to say about this. Influenced by the rise of nationalism in Europe, began to look to Palestine. Jews began to look to Palestine as a possible place for a Jewish homeland. A wave of Jewish people came to the country in an ascent starting in the 1880s, making their homes on land bought from Palestinians. So this is where you start seeing Jews coming to Palestine and they're buying land and they're starting to settle. So you had, um, and a lot of this was because of anti-Semitic tropes in Europe. Uh, and that's of course, when we get to Nazi Germany in, in 1933, but we're, we're getting there. Um, settlement was core to Zionism, a Jewish nationalist movement. Is that fair to say, Daniel, a Jewish nationalist movement? Uh, yeah, that's definitely fair to say in a general sense. Okay. Nationalism gets a very poor um, depiction, so I didn't, I didn't want to say that if that's not fair. Okay. Um, because it demanded land for a Jewish state. Jewish nationalism demands land, land for a Jewish state, so they're looking to Palestine at this point. Yeah, what I, what, I, what I will say just in terms of, you know, you said nationalism gets a bad rap, which it definitely does. And I think, you know, we've definitely lived to see, you know, how nefarious nationalism could get. When, when we say Zionism was a nationalist movement, that might almost be very different than how we would conceive of nationalism today. Because most of the time when people conceive of strong nationalist movements, that's already taking place within a nation state. So usually internally in a nation state, you have some group or even a majority of that nation state, which will become increasingly nationalistic. And we know how destructive that gets. In terms of Zionism, this was pre-state. So Zionism was really a movement to have a Jewish state. So, so it's definitely still nationalism, but it might be different than how one might use nationalism today in the 21st century. That's a great distinction. That's a great distinction. Okay. I like that. That's a very good distinction. Um, and their slogan, oh, we, we get a slogan, a land without a people for a people without a land was the Zionist slogan at this time. Um, this article says that it was not accurate because the land was occupied by predominantly Muslim communities. Okay, so that was super early days. That was the first, that was the first uh, point in this article. We had some commentary there from Daniel. Wally, I think, is okay with everything that was said there. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I guess just a note about nationalism, and I mean, this time in, in just world history is that, uh, you know, empires were coming down. I think, you know, like colonialism was... Uh, not fully yet on its way out, but, uh, you know, you have former colonies of, of, of Britain and whatnot uh, seeking their own sort of uh, national, quote-unquote, self-determination. So wanting to, you know, effectively govern and administer themselves, uh, I, I think, if we understand nationalism in that way. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate uh, Daniel's commentary. And I think that's very important because uh, currently, if you say someone's a nationalist to me, I really don't think very highly of that person. So... <laughs> So that's a very important distinction of, of wanting to have a nation as opposed to uh, what we see nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Gustavo, if I can say two just quick, quick points. Yeah. One Please. in terms of, I guess, filling in a little bit of the, the background. So, so Zionism, you know, in some distilled definition was a Jewish movement for self-determination, usually conceived of in the form of a state. Um, but there's actually a very specific reason why they picked 
the land of Israel or the land of Palestine, however we want to refer to that. And that's because for the previous 2000 years in Jewish history, after the Jewish people were exiled from that land by the Romans in the year 70 CE, and Jews were, you know, subsequently dispersed all throughout the world, Jews in Jewish culture, religion, liturgy, and poetry really kept their ties to this land of Israel. So when, when the movement came, which was definitely influenced by European nationalism, for Jews coming and saying, hey, we, should, we actually need our own state for a variety of factors, there's a very specific reason why they picked this piece of land and not just any other land. And actually, you know, the, the British government actually offered Uganda to the Zionist movement, and it was almost unanimously rejected. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm look. Let me stop you there because that is the next point. So let me let me go through it, and then we'll get the rest of your commentary. Um, and let me also say, to full disclosure to both of you and the listeners, I you know I am a Christian. I've obviously read the Old Testament, um, and I've been in ministry for a decade almost. So I I am sympathetic to the um, to the history there. And if I could say one 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 more thing, you know, not sure. to nitpick, but that you know, so the infamous slogan. Uh, a land without a people for people without a land that's usually yeah. held up as being synonymous with Zionism. So that that quote actually wasn't really said by any of the early Jewish Zionists. That was actually a, a Christian minister who said that in the mid-19th century. And actually most early Zionists and Jews, and we could read the writings of Theodore Herzl or Asher Ginsburg. <laughs> that's what I'm bringing up next. <laughs> so, so, but just, so just, I guess, to make this point, so they yeah. all recognized that that there was a local indigenous population. Now, maybe okay. they, they were a little naive in terms of how to go about finding a state while caring for that local population, but there definitely was not an, a full throttle, you know, oh, there's no one here sentiment. Disregard. Okay, that's a great point. Okay, now we're on 1896 to 1917, which is the second uh, point here made by the author. And Theodore Herzl comes up. He's the very first person we're missing. He publishes the, uh, boy, I'm going to, Der Judenstaat? Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state. I don't know. I'm probably butchering that <laughs> seven ways from Sunday. But the Jewish state is what it's titled in English there. Uh, and this is basically what Daniel's been talking about this whole time, is the intellectual base for the idea of a Jewish country. And um, Daniel really basically said everything that this author wrote in this um, in this section, um, essentially denying the decline in Uganda uh, discusses some other some other countries there and really wanting a state that had connection historical connection with the Jewish people. Um, many Palestinians resisted this movement to settle in the territory and express their own national identity through channels such as the Palestine, which was a newspaper at the time uh, named for their homeland. Let's see. And then we had some Palestinians aggressively targeting landowners who sold land to Jewish settlers. Um, and this is where you start having some conflict with Jewish immigration into Palestine, or what was at the time Palestine. Um, and it looks like a struggle with the Zionists armed with modern European nationalist ideas, organization, and technologies, they were, they were having the edge in that early dispute. So that was just point two. Now we're on point three. Danny, did you have anything else to add to your uh, earlier commentary? Um, I, I, would, I would add one thing, and then I'll see if uh, Wally has anything else to add that that I think the the important thing to highlight and you know we you know a lot of nationalist movements or nation states were sort of founded in sin I, I think you know we can kind of look around the world and, sure. and I think Israel actually has sort of a lot of dirty laundry there also 
Um, but one of the ways in which, you know, Israel is often compared to a lot of other Western states in the way that they were founded by sort of people from the outside coming in and wiping out an indigenous population. You know, if we think of the way that the Americas were, quote unquote, founded by by the European settlers with Zionism, sure. I think you actually mentioned this before. Initially, there was really a, a ubiquitous Zionist attempt to actually buy up land, which was yeah. a whole other series of controversial questions and ethics of, you know, is it ethical to, let's say, the Ottoman Empire owned a lot of the land in contemporary Israel. So is it ethical for a Zionist group to go to the Ottoman Empire, purchase a farm, show up to the farm, present the Arab, you know, farmer who's been living there for four generations with the deed and be like, hey, this is our land now, right? So these are complex ethical questions, um, but but it's, it's a stone's throw away from how, let's say, America or a lot of other countries and modern nations that were founded in terms of the, the ethical disparities there. Sure. I, I, I can agree with that. Wally, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a reasonable assertion that, like, you know, the, the a lot of the early, like, migration, like Daniel said, was, you know, aimed at, you know, purchasing up the land, but I guess uh, determining ownership. And I'm sure, you know, as a as an attorney that, like, you know, property is, is a, a tricky it's complicated. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it gets complicated. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, so far, I mean, so far, that's basically what we have is the Zionist uh, Jews deciding on Palestine and attempting to buy up land for the most part. Um, nothing too, too awful there. Now we're in 1917 during the First World War. British-led troops conquered southern Palestine and took Jerusalem. Um, they're telling me about some letters they wrote in the Times. It did not promise the Jewish people a state in the country. This is speaking of the British. Oh, this is a really important letter that came out and basically split it, split the, uh, split the doll down the center, basically saying Jewish people, it did not promise Jewish people a state in the country, but it also didn't uh, basically tell the Palestinians to get out. It recognized the Palestine as a region uh, with a non-Jewish population. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that probably the quote unquote, because I hate these terms, you know, the pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian sides could agree on is, you know, the the utter mess that the uh, British created by basically taking over the land, colonizing it, and subsequently, in some ways, promising the land to both people and in some ways not delivering on either of those promises. So you, you definitely won't have any love for the uh, British from from me. And, you know, I don't know, Wally, if you have something to add. <laughs> Uh, you know, my own, uh, you know, heritage is Pakistani, and I can just tell you how much the British messed around in South Asia. So, uh, you know, like no love there. But I mean, it's worth noting that like, you know, prior to the British, uh, you know, taking control as, as a result of uh, winning World War One, effectively, that, uh, you know, there was there was a level of like coexistence and whatnot, and even like going back before that. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I've seen so far uh, in step three. Let's see. I'm gonna. There's a there's a bit of a uh, a nasty quote here that I'm gonna omit because I don't think it's useful, and I don't want to attribute it to anybody. But if you're if you're interested in the nasty quote, you can go look at the uh, article later on. There there is no dearth of nasty quotes from from every which side, you know, from, yeah. from everywhere in the world in the early twentieth uh, century. Let's just say that some Jewish settlers did not like the Palestinians very much. Um. Okay, now we're moving on. So after the, the bit with the British, we're moving on to 1929 to 47. So we're halfway through the key, or we're about to be halfway through the key events that this author outlined. That seems to be coinciding with the recounting of the history from uh, Daniel and Wally. So as violence erupted between the two communities, Jews and Palestinians divided and people had to take sides. 
early Jewish inhabitants, which is the people we're talking about that were coexisting, um, were confronted politically by mobilized European Jews. So people who were there, now they're running into Jews who came from Europe and they're saying, hey, we got to pick sides here and you have to uh, be with us, as, as you would imagine. Uh, many of these longtime Jewish occupants of Palestine and the Middle East cut ties with their Arab neighbors. An outbreak of extreme violence in 1929 dashed any hopes of Jewish Palestinians combining, um, com combining, and revenge right-wing Zionist organizations grew. Now, what do you? I don't understand what revisionist right-wing Zionist organizations are, because I don't. I don't know what revisionist would mean there. Daniel, do you have anything to say about that term? Yeah, a hundred percent. So, I mean, just like any other, you know, political movement throughout throughout history, or really, you know, if we imagine, let's say, the array of political viewpoints within America, Zionism is definitely not monolithic in terms of its ideology, both today and at the outset. So, there were actually two. There were actually a lot more than two, but for the purpose of this conversation, there were sort of two major camps of early Zionists. One that I would sort of depict as political slash liberal Zionists those like Theodore Herzl, who were really attempting to take to, to take post-Enlightenment ideas and ideals into the land of Israel slash Palestine and really create almost sort of a, a socialist next generation utopia that if we actually read a lot of these writings, most early Zionists were actually very far on the left. They were, they were mostly socialists. So if you read Herzl's writings, he almost wanted to create a socialist utopia full of, you know, full egalitarianism between Jews, Christians, Muslims, everyone. And contrary to that grew a movement called the Revisionist Zionists. And this was actually mostly in reaction to the British, but also in reaction to a series of Arab riots that were happening throughout the late 1920s. And this was a group that wanted to bring a much more militant form to, to Zionism. And they were called sort of re revisionist for a variety of reasons, but they really actually looked back to some of the more biblical days and some of the more days where, where Israel was much more involved militarily. You know, if you just read through the Hebrew Bible, you can get a sort of a, a sense of where they were going. But their ideas were a lot more, we have to go on the offensive, we have to be aggressive, both towards the British and towards the Arab population, than Herzl and the political Zionists, who their outlook was, we are not here to be aggressive or go on the offensive at all. And so this was an ideological battle that was taking place within Zionism in the context of this larger, I'll say, strife and conflict with both the local Arabs and, and the British. So there was definitely, you know, lots of different opinions floating around. Yeah, there. well, that, that definitely clears it up <laughs> because I read that and I was like, huh, right-wing Zionist organizations. Because when I think of a nationalist, I already think of a right, kind of a right-wing ideology to begin with. But like we described earlier, this was a different use of the term. Yeah, and, and just to you know, drive, drive that point home, because I think it's so crucial, the Zionism as a nationalist movement, I mean, the vast majority of early Zionists were, were actually socialists. They were atheist socialists. And so the idea that they were nationalists to the extent that we would conceive of nationalists today can't right. be correct, because most of them were actually attempting to flee a Europe that had become so nationalistic that they basically turned to the Jews and said, hey, Jews, you're not part of, you know, insert European country here. Get out right. of here. You know, you have no home in Europe. You have no home, you know, anywhere here. So, so most early Zionists were actually reacting to nationalism. And that's what inspired them to want to find a political solution in the form of a nation. Perfect. 
Um, it, is, it is worth noting, I think, though, that yeah. a lot of the uh, sort of more, I guess you could say, like like uh, force based, uh, you know, efforts of uh, of settling uh, in, in in you know British Mandate Palestine. Uh, I, I think a lot of the connotations of like being colonial come from uh, these particular, I, I think, more right wing movements, at least in the initial phase. Um, you know, but I mean, it, it's really worth noting that like if like Theodore Herzl's writings in particular, I can't remember the exact quote, but uh, there was a level of acknowledging like, uh, you know, peaceful coexistence with uh, those living there that like, you know, the, like the Jews that would move there uh, ultimately like, you know, should uh, maintain a level of like harmony and stuff. But I, I mean, that's a, I think, oft uh, repeated quote that, um, you know, is, uh, is brought up when, when people talk about like early Zionists and stuff. But I think the, I think I know which quote you're referring to. Um, uh, Gustavo, that uh, the one you wanted to omit, but uh, I, I mean, it just brings up <laughs> the general um, attitude of um, you know, like the colonial feel of of some of these other uh, movements, where uh, it implies like moving in and you know, um, like at odds, I guess, with the local population and displacing. But I mean, like you know, the the ideal oftentimes like differs from the uh, sort of the implementation, execution, sort of resultant. Um, of course, thing. but yeah. Um, I mean, I, I want to just, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because I think like you'll, you'll start to hear, especially nowadays, like when t discussing like current politics, like the word settler colonialism used a lot. Um, and I think like when, when people talk about it, 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 it seems like it's almost coming out of the blue, but um, I think this, this places some level of like historicity to it. Um, but yeah. Totally. No, I, and I, and I wasn't aware that there was a, um, that that whole earlier Zionist movement is totally lost on me. I'm much more familiar with this revisionist right-wing Zionist organization that they're talking about now. Well, just uh, to, I guess just to sort of pipe in there. So the, the revisionist Zionists didn't actually gain any public political power until the late 1970s. So, you know, if we want to fast forward, you know, we, we could talk about the current prime minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, right. who's very ideologically inspired by this sort of revisionist thought. I, I, you know, identify as a liberal Zionist. I'm not a fan of, of Bibi Netanyahu. But, but when, when talking about the settler colonialism, I, I'm not sure, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I'm not sure as much they're talking about the activities of the, the revisionist Zionists versus the quote-unquote liberal Zionists. I, I've always thought, and, and I'm pretty sure in this conviction, that it's, it's the mistaking of European Jews moving to this place in the Middle East and conflating that with every other time people from Europe came to the Middle East and North Africa, where in every other case, it was an act of colonialism to either enrich either the settlers or to enrich a mother country that they were then going to go back after they plundered the resources. And with Zionism, every single person, every single Jew, both initially from Europe, although there were some Jews in the initial Aliyot, Aliyah in Hebrew is just you know, people moving to Israel from, from Yemen and throughout the uh, Middle East. But, you know, later on in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, Jews from virtually every Arab country ended up moving to Israel. None of them came with the intention of plundering the land and leaving and enriching some mother country. Israel was sure. seen as that motherland. So that's, that's where I find, you know, statements of colonialism to not only be inaccurate, but, but I'm actually curious to, you know, throw this out there and see Wally's reaction. I've always thought that it actually hurts the Palestinians themselves more than they have to gain from it. Because I think that the Palestinians have been convinced, maybe from their own doing, maybe from, you know, other types of propaganda, that Zionism is just settler colonialism. And therefore, just like the decline of other 
colonies and other empires that one day Zionism will sort of pick up and walk away because it's quote unquote, just not worth it anymore. Whereas from the Israeli or quote unquote pro-Israel point of view, there is nowhere else to go. Zionism is almost seen in Jewish history as this is the last step. You know, we've been beat around the world for 2000 years and we've actually finally returned to our land. And so Hmm. it's much more the language of, of returning than actually going out and conquering. Yeah, that's no, really I mean, interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, just, I was going to say that's very interesting. I never, I've never heard it quite put that way. That Zionism is the last step in the journey. That's very interesting. What were you going to say, Ali? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like Zionism sort of completes like the redemptive arc of like you know like quote unquote like Jewish history, um, where you know it's like it's a, it's a return after you know all of these years in exile and whatnot. But I think the the connotation, uh, just given the time of of like the the period of history that. Uh, you know, this wave of, of migration occurred, uh, you know, to like British Mandate Palestine, current Israel, Israel, Palestine, whatever, um, that that felt very much like, you know, European settlers or European colonialism, uh, colonialism uh, coming in. But it's a different situation because colonialism has historically meant, uh, you know, like a mother sort of to the colony, uh, you know, but this, right. I, I think yeah, the, the, the exact like precise language uh, you know, can be discussed and debated, but uh, uh, there's the yeah. notion of, of people coming in and effectively being at odds. I don't know if you want to say like gentrification, <laughs> just to be more <laughs> topical in language, but, uh, yeah. you know, like, but the, I think the concept of, of this like European wave of migration and from elsewhere as well, um, and, and sort of, I think the key term here is like displacement. We haven't really gotten quite there yet, because I think up until this point, like, you know, the specific yeah, we're, boundaries we're of the nation state, yeah. Yeah, I think we can, we can get to the, I think the, we, well, let's get, I think maybe further in the. Yeah, let's keep going um, here and then we'll, yeah, we'll the get the historical timeline, commentary. but we should definitely yeah, put a pin still, in that and come back to it. Yeah, let's put a pin in that. But I do, I do understand the points that you're made. I think they're very good ones. Um, we're still in the 1930s though. So let's keep going a little bit further. Um, at this point, militant Muslim preachers, I'm not going to say this guy's name. There's a guy, he's got a name. Uh, <laughs> mobilized. Uh, I got Shaikh. Huh? Is Al Din Al Qasam? Okay, it's a different. Uh, That's who I have. Mobilized yeah. Palestinians, priming them for jihad. The Jewish population prepared as well, building a proto-state alongside the sent political and economic structures, having already established a defense organization, Haganah. Man, I'm really should have prepped better on the pronunciation of things. Um, yeah, and then we of course just have a Palestinian Jewish conflict, but the problem here was British authorities uh, also having at odds with Palestinians, reaching a crescendo in a mass revolt in 1936 that was crushed by the mil- British military in 1939. So they had three years of Palestinian revolts and riots. By the Second World War, the British had shifted their policy from support of Zionism to blocking Jewish immigration in Palestine. They did this to gain support for their war effort, this time from Arab allies. Mm-hmm. In the face of Jewish people escaping the unfolding Holocaust in Europe, this caused growing resentment and conflict with Zionists who were trying to save European Jews by helping them get to Palestine. Let's see. After the war ended in 1945, Jewish population of Palestine had become sufficiently powerful and mobilized to fight Britain. And good Jewish preparation won the day. Jewish terror attacks against British targets helped to force Britain to reconsider its political priorities. And in one of the most infamous attacks, in 1946, the wing of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem that housed the British headquarters was blown up, killing almost 100 people. Oh, I did not know that. In 1947, Britain decided to leave Palestine. 
Uh, meanwhile, survivors of the Holocaust who immigrated to Palestine further boosted the territory's Jewish population. In November of the same year, the United National General Assembly passed a resolution that proposed the, the partition of Palestine into Jewish and Arab states. Under the plan, Jerusalem would be an internalized, internationalized city. The suggestion was accepted reluctantly by Jewish representatives in the region because it offered some international acceptance of their aims of establishing a state. Palestinian and Arab groups rejected it, however, arguing that it ignored the rights of most of the population of Palestine to decide their own destiny. So that was the majority of uh, key point number four. Now we're getting to where things get juicy. The birth of well, – it was pretty juicy there, but the birth yeah. of modern <laughs> Israel – there was some juice there, but it gets juicier, boys. It gets juicier. <laughs> 1948 to 1949, the first Arab-Israeli War of 1948, followed on from the violence between Jews and Palestinians as neighboring Arab states for their own political motives. Um, let's see. Palestinian Arabs, brethren. So you had some Arab states intervening in the hostilities. Uh, that's right around when British troops left Palestine. And then you have your first named Zionist leader, David Ben-Gurion. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Yep, he's the first prime minister of Israel. Oh, isn't that isn't that an airport? And it's also the airport. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, there you go. It's really crazy. They named the first prime minister after their airport. <laughs> uh, he declared the formation of the state of Israel. At which point, Egypt, Iraq, Transjordan, Lebanon, and Syria attacked in support of the Palestinians. Uh, this is a really dramatic line in this guy's in this guy's uh, article. Israel was born from war. Both the legacy of the Holocaust and more immediate conflict of the Arab armies attacks in May 1948. Uh, born in war, born in the fire. Yeah, uh, so if, if I can just inter, inter yeah, go ahead. With, with a point that I think might, might spark an interesting conversation. Um, and I can throw out, you know, an interesting uh, article for people to read. It was written in the New York Times a few years ago by a journalist named uh, Mati Friedman. And it was called There Is No Israeli-Palestinian Conflict you know, a very provocative title. But what, what he says to really get at the psyche of Israel and Israelis and to sort of shine a light on how Israel's acted in the last 70 or so years is that from maybe the Western world's point of view, we have Israel versus the Palestinians, where Israel is much more powerful, much bigger, backed by Western countries against this sort of small population of Palestinians. Whereas most Israelis see the conflict of it's tiny Israel within the larger sea of Arab countries all of which have declared war against Israel multiple times in the last 70 years. And it, and it was definitely a lot worse in Israel's founding. You know, now Israel actually has peace treaties with a number of its neighbors. But in 48, and then again in 67, and then again in 73, Israel was attacked from sort of all sides. So it, it made and it fostered the sentiment within Israel as we are surrounded by enemies and we have to make sure that security is our number one step in terms of anything sometimes so my my critique of israel and the current israeli government is sometimes they they go overboard on that and they forget about other important things but very much from the israeli perspective it's not the israelis versus the palestinians but it's israel versus all of these arab countries yeah and i mean from from that early history i mean i'll read i'll read that line again um once we have david ben gurion declare the formation of the state, at which point Egypt, Iraq, Transjordan, Lebanon, and Syria attacked Israel in support of the Palestinians. So I, I certainly can, can see that feeling from having so many uh, states attack you like that. Um, and then moving on, we have, of course, a military, uh, military confrontation. We have Israel succeeding, allowing it to expand its territory to include all of British from Palestine, with the exception of the hilly West Bank 
next to Jordan, East Jerusalem, and the territory known as the Gaza Strip, the infamous Gaza Strip, running along the Mediterranean Sea. The result of this expansion, and I thought this was kind of a, a huge, a huge stat. The result of this expansion was that Israel controlled more than 75% of what had formerly been British-run Palestine, or in other words, the Palestinians now held less than 25% of Palestine. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, I'd love to hear Wally's perspective on, on 1948, but, but before, before that, just two, two points leading up to 48, which, you know, then I'll, I'll pass it over to Wally. Um, is that both in 1937 and then again in 1947, first the British and then the UN actually sent a delegation to this land to try to figure out how to avoid war. And in both cases, the solution they came up with was split it into two states. Let's have an Arab state and a Jewish state, you know, sort of the other infamous solution, the two-state solution. And in both of those scenarios, the land offered to the, the Jewish side, first in the 30s and in the 40s, was very small. And in both cases, the Jewish leaders said yes, and the Arab leaders said no. And the Arab leaders didn't only say, say no, and this is, you know, when you get into sort of the, the dominant narrative on the Israeli side, it's not just that they said no to this deal. They said no to this deal because their assumption was that, well, in a couple of years from now, the entire country, Israel, will be destroyed anyway, and we'll have the whole thing. So it was no because they had intended to basically wipe newly formed Israel off the map. So then, of course, in a war that then breaks out, land is going to change sides, especially, you know, there was so much flux going on. Britain was pulling out. The UN was trying to step in. You had these two sides having frequent skirmishes against each other. So a lot of people quote sort of this, this map of like the vanishing land of Palestine from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s. But the other way to view that map could easily, that, that, that map could just as easily be labeled the consequences of waging a genocidal war on your land, uh, on, on your land. So let me let me ask a couple of clarifying questions. It's your position that historically, being historically accurate, that at the time um, when these when these deals were offered, that a Palestine was set on erasing Israel from the map, and b that Jewish leaders had agreed to these deals. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, Palestine is not a monolith, you know, just like nothing's a monolith, but very, very charismatic and very widely accepted Palestinian leaders said no to these deals, whereas the Israeli leaders on the or the Jewish leaders, because Israel wasn't created yet, said said yes to those deals. I mean, that's actually why one of the reasons why today there's no Palestinian state is because in 1947, with the U.N. partition plan, when they elected to divide it into two states, kind of what you were reading before with Jerusalem being sort of an international buffer zone, the Jews said yes, and they declared a state. The next day, you know, all the Arab countries declared war on it. But the flip side of that is Palestinian leaders said no. And so what is currently Gaza and the West Bank was offered to basically be declared a state, and, and, and that was turned down. Interesting. Okay, see, I'm glad, I'm glad we're going through this article because that is not mentioned in here. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a very important, uh, important distinction. Wally, do you have any, any comment on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's worth knowing. And again, like, you know, the, the exact details of, of you know, uh, like the history and the reaction to the partition plan, that's like not something that I'm like extremely well studied in. But I think my understanding has, you know, certainly been that there's been like territorial uh, division was just something that was like not like, I think, on the table for uh, a lot of the um, Arab leaders that 
uh, and governments that were, you know, participating. So I think there was like the argument that uh, like it violated, you know, the principles of like self-determination. And I think there's a question of like sure. people there. Um, but I, the, the dates also are unfortunately a little bit lost on me, but I think we're, I, I know Daniel kind of alluded to, um, you know, events of 1948, uh, you know, following Israel, uh, leading up to and following Israel's independence um, or founding, I guess, which I think has implications for uh, like the Palestinians, but. Yeah, we're, let me get to that right now. So sure. what happens next is Nakba or catastrophe that turns hundreds of thousands of them, them being the Palestinians, into refugees. For Israel, it was a triumph in a war of independence facing a full-scale assault against the Jewish people. And this is where we really get the different views of what happened. Both communities see the events very differently. Palestinians think the Arabs were hell-bent on destroying Israel in 1948. And the war provoked ended up making thousands of Palestinians people refugees. And which is exactly what Daniel just said. That's exactly what um, that perspective was. From a Palestinian viewpoint, the Israelis were acting on a plan to expel them and thus ethically cleanse the country, ethnically cleanse the country, which having had Daniel's point of view, that seems, um, that seems revisionist of history in a sense, if, if that's accurate, that um, they were the ones that were not willing to accept that deal. Um, that seems like a big, a big point for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's worth noting that I think the, the, the Arab government sort of view was that like, is it like Britain's place to be able to carve up everything? And uh, like, and, and that was like certainly at odds with like the sort of other Arab nationalism uh, movements that were uh, also like coalescing around that time. But um, yeah, I mean the, the exact like time period of the quote unquote Nakba as Palestinians refer to it as um, that resulted in those like several hundred thousand uh, Palestinian Arabs being expelled or really leaving. Uh, those kind of um, like there, there's a number of different uh, like clashes and in some cases like outright massacres that I think are what uh, were the impetus for a lot of Palestinians uh, to yeah. sort of leave. yeah, yeah like as a result are, of yeah it's like so, you guys so are I reading mean, like, the article at the same time that I'm reading oh, because no, let me, not let this me exact s- one no I, I don't yeah think, I know it's just yeah. hilarious because <laughs> it's organized yeah. in the same way that you're discussing this let me <laughs> let me finish this thing because I'm almost at the end of five. Because it's, it's addressing exactly what you're talking about, um, which is the massacres. Because as Israel expelled the Palestinians, more than 100,000 Palestinians remained in Israel after 1949. And what followed was a massacre, followed by counter-massacre. Jewish forces killed around 100 Palestinian villagers at Deir Yassin, just west of Jerusalem, in April 1948. Shortly afterwards, Arab fighters killed 80 Jewish medical staff near Jerusalem. Uh, and these massacres just just continued. Um, and the conclusion of the first Arab-Israeli war left two significant political problems, both of which remain largely unsolved today. First, more than 700,000 Palestinians now live in refugee camps in the Egyptian-run Gaza Strip um, along the Jordan West Bank. And Jerusalem built a functioning Jewish state, drawing in more, more Jews from around, around the countries, uh, from around the world, who lived for centuries in Arab countries, but were no longer welcome there. But though the Zionists had realized the ambition of a Jewish state, no Arab state recognized it, meaning Israel was flanked by hostile neighbors. The consequences of the failure to establish the political needs of both communities were to feed directly into the wars that were to come. Okay, so that was five. So we only have two more historical points to go. I, I, I definitely suspect there'll be some, some thing, things that I talked about uh, number five. 
I guess I'll, I'll throw out a few <laughs> things and then I'm curious to hear where Wally agrees and disagrees. Um, I, I am definitely not one to defend everything Israel or I guess the Zionist movement did in 1948. There are definitely harrowing accounts of, of massacres and of systematic attempts to go through individual villages and clear them. Um, and there's, you know, and ju just as on the other side, there was an attempt from the various Arab armies to go into Jewish areas and commit massacres and, and clear them. So really, there's, there's a lot to uh, criticize ethically on, on both sides. What, what did happen and what, what I think is important, and there's definitely a lot of, of historical debate on this. So I'll be honest here. Um, in terms of no one really has a clear account of 1948. And in my opinion, if anyone tells you they know exactly what happened in 1948 on, on either side, you should probably um, not fully trust them. But it was, it was some mixture in terms of the creation of the Palestinian refugee crisis of three, three different things. One is exactly as we said before, where there was in the middle of a war and there were massacres and other things happening sporadically spread throughout the land. The, the second is that a lot of them voluntarily fled. This was an active war zone. And so a lot of them just wanted to not be in the middle of an active war when you had all these various Arab armies converging throughout the Middle East, fighting, you know, a sporadic and, and Israel actually basically had two armies at the time because the revisionist Zionist movement had their own force and the Haganah, which is the precursor to the IDF, was sort of the quote unquote liberal Zionist army. So, so you had just so many different forces. And third is that there's actually a lot of recorded data of leaders of Arab countries telling local Palestinians to leave, make room for their forces to come in. They're going to pummel the country. They're going to destroy it. And then people can come back to their houses. And, and in, in a lot of those cases, either people voluntarily left or there are plenty of accounts of the Palestinians actually joining these Arab armies in this all-out war against Israel. And so then the Israel perspective on that would be, again, you know, you, you've attacked us, you lost. At a certain point, you can't keep attacking, losing, and then complaining about the loss of land. Okay. Yeah, so I think, I think the, 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 the way that the Palestinian narrative frames this all is that uh, every village, I think, uh, that left was fearing situations like Dar Yassin. Um, and that obviously, you know, is, is subject because, like, you know, further conflict, everything like uh, I, I think the voluntary like escaping, I think, was probably precipitated by the sort of, you know, fear of, of those types of massacres um, from happening. So I think where you get a lot of, uh, you know, especially if you go to any protests or see signs, you'll see specifically the language of like ethnic cleansing being used, which is obviously very like forceful terms. And I think uh, so much of the the framing of of this sort of, you know, mass migration of Palestinians out of uh, you know, now what is now Israel, um, I guess, uh, because at that point it had already declared independence or, uh, I, I believe the, 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 a lot of the, the precipitating massacres and stuff were from before and, uh, uh, occurred, I think a little bit thereafter, or I shouldn't say all the massacres, but there's just like timelines and stuff you can yeah. see, but in effect, um, yeah, it, it, it becomes painted as, uh, you know, this effort to displace Palestinians, uh, from the country. Um, but, you know, it, it's obviously like certainly murky, but I think the, the effect certainly was was that uh, Palestinians ended up being displaced and whatnot. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And you're definitely right. That's definitely the the effect. Um, the, the, the other important data point, I think, for listeners is that both after 1948 and today in Israel, about 20 percent of the population was, as we would call Palestinian. 
So, so today, 20% of Israeli citizens, and again, in a, in a liberal democracy, so they have just as much of a right to vote and the same legal system as yeah. Jewish Israelis. They, and they and these are Palestine. people that didn't leave, like from like during the quote unquote Nakba. And oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I've been using that word, the Nakba, uh, which uh, you'll hear again uh, referred to, like, you know, Israel's War of Independence, which coincided with what Palestinians call literally the catastrophe, uh, which was um, sort of this like mass displacement of, of Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it's a very, it's a very stark contrast uh, between the two. Yeah, but, I mean, you're absolutely right that, like, you know, not everybody was displaced, ultimately. Like, it was, um, uh, the, the exact numbers, I think, are estimated around, like, 700,000, 800,000, but the number that remained were certainly still significant, but uh, no, no longer quite the number they once were, but, yeah. Yeah, and, and the other two, two quick data points that I think, I, I don't know if this article necessarily addressed, but I think it alluded to this first one, that right after 1948, between 1948 and 67, there were Jews spread out throughout Arab countries, all throughout the Middle East and North Africa. And as a result of Israel being founded as a country, these countries all kicked out their local Jewish populations. Yes. Even yeah. if, and, 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 and this is crucial to point out, even if those local Jews had no open sympathies towards Zionism or going to Israel. So you had all of these Arab countries looking towards their local Jewish population Jews who had lived there for thousands of years and saying, hey, Jews, you might have dual loyalty in a next conflict with Israel. So you're actually going to have to be kicked out of the country, which is why today, you know, we can get into conversations later about why most Jews perceive staunch anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. And a lot of it is because for Jews, anti-Zionism was actually the root cause of a lot of anti-Semitism being practiced against Jews. N- not not only in Europe, but actually mostly throughout the Arab world. That's a great point. Hang on one second for me. Um, and then the very next event that we have is the one second. Oh, and I guess sorry. While you're Jewish gathering, presence. it should be noted that the uh, those who were displaced made their way into the. I guess I guess you did mention actually into Gaza, the West Bank, and then yes. also refugee camps like in Jordan and Lebanon, et cetera. Yeah, Wally, can we actually unpack one one point of the refugee um, situation in terms of Palestinian refugees that I don't sure. think anybody on the quote-unquote pro-Israel side understands? Mm-hmm. So so the UN, and, you know, I, I implore people at home to, you know, do a quick Google search. Don't, don't trust my words for it. But the UN actually has a different definition of a refugee when it comes to Palestinians as they do for virtually any other refugee population. Whereas, you know, my, my great-grandparents were refugees from Russia and they moved to America, they became citizens, so they were no longer refugees. But it seems like the definition that the UN has is even if Palestinians took up citizenship in different countries, they're still considered refugees, which just exacerbates this problem. And I think today the account is like, what, there's 8 million or so Palestinian refugees that are around the world? Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's the refugees, as in those who were originally uh, displaced, and then uh, their you know extended family member descendants, things like that. Uh, I imagine the affiliation uh, that people have with UNRWA, which is the UN uh, Works Agency, I think that's the acronym uh, for Palestine. Um, they, I think, they're the ones who run the official uh, sort of tally and things of that sort. Um, I think. I'm just pulling up some stats. I think as of 2019, more than 5.6 million Palestinians were registered, uh, of which more than 1.5 million live in uh, UNRWA-run camps. 
Um, so it doesn't like include uh, internally displaced people and uh, people who've gotten citizenship necessarily elsewhere per se. So it's like, it's a weird kind of uh, like a limbo-y status. I don't know the extent to which mm-hmm. people have actually been able to yeah, you know, nationalize so, so- elsewhere because a lot of, I don't know the exact specifics, but I know certainly like not every single Arab country does offer birthright citizenship where if you're born there, then you automatically get that citizenship or whatnot. But in any case, um, you know, I guess you could probably attribute it to, you know, just the UN being so young and this being one of their, you know, first like big kind of uh, uh, really situations to deal with that it probably had this level of, um, you know, specificity to to how they like the institutions handled stuff. But yeah, I mean, the more yeah. the more cynical, you know, pro-Israel take one that I don't entirely share. So I'll say that at the outset, but I'll throw it out there because I think it is it is a good argument is that you know, this this UNRWA situation really set up the Palestinians for just epic failure because it kept them in this conflict. Whereas in the mid 20th century, if you want to, you know, take an accounting of all the people displaced in war and things like that. I mean, these are tens of millions of people all, all throughout the world. But the way that the world works and again, the world doesn't work in fair and ethical ways. So this is, I, you know, I don't like that I'm about to say this, but the way that the world works is wars happen, people, you know, move around, you know, the, the result of wars and subsequent, you know, refugee problems need, need to be dealt with. And Jews, as people who were quite literally every single Jew throughout the 19th and 20th century was a refugee of somewhere. I think that's true for like 90 to 95% of Jews. But it seems like specifically with the Palestinian population, the international community edged on a fixation on returning to Palestine as opposed to getting settled down in any other country. And it seems almost like the rest of the Arab world, you know, it's sort of the last wave of pan-Arab nationalism really urged this because not because they cared about the Palestinians. I mean, I think we would both agree that countries like Jordan and Egypt and Syria, they don't actually care about Palestinian people. They just hate Israel. And so they, you know, in a very cynical view, they just sort of fostered this of, you know, the Palestinians need right of return, they need right of return. Whereas today, of course, it's a disaster. It's worth noting, though, that right of return was something that the UN during the, uh, you know, 1948 war uh, was something that the UN itself had defined. Um, So the I I think the exact resolution, I forget the number, um, but basically stating that, you know, Palestinians uh, in in sort of preparation for a final sort of settlement agreement, uh, like in this conflict should be like allowed to return to the places they were uh, expelled from effectively. Uh, Let me Google the language really fast. So it says Article 11 of the resolution states that refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then there being compensation for those not being able to. So like the right of return question was not something that, uh, you know, is just out of a pure, you know, rejection of, you know, like Israel as a whole. Um, It's something that was seen as, you know, the rightful recompense uh, as a result of, you know, the war. Um, yeah, and I, and I guess, yeah. you know, because this is, I, I think it's it's important to highlight this because this is probably a, yeah. a, a point And of I guess, and, and yeah. also really quickly, just to get this in, um, is that like, you know, the nature of, I think, like refugees as a whole is that, you know, taking refuge and then ultimately like hoping to return. So I know in the case of like Bosnia in the 90s, there's uh, a lot of refugees that ultimately were able to return to Bosnia. And I think uh, at least depending on the country that absorbed them, and I think people probably would be willing to stay if there were better economic and other opportunities. But um, I, I think how we define refugee 
I, I guess it, it, it differs um, certainly based on context, certainly also because like in the case of many Jewish refugees that ultimately like had to, uh, you know, go back, go away from where they were living. Like the, the conditions to return were just uh, not like feasible or not there, or even there was really nothing for them to return to. And yeah. I think of in the case for Palestinians, uh, you know, this, this whole notion of right of return uh, involves kind of, you know, restoring what was, you know, effectively dispossessed from them. Um, and listen, in a so, potential, in a potential yeah. two-state solution, I would actually be be open to, and, and, you know, and I'm sure this would, would upset, you know, plenty of my uh, pro-Israel friends more to the right, but I would certainly be open to, to a commission being set up to attempt to actually, you know, dig through the archives of 48 and really yeah. figure out, like, which families are owed what and have some sort of payout. I, 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 I'll also say I would want the Arab countries that kicked out 800,000 Jews from oh, absolutely. the Arab world to, to also do that, you know. And I think it's and, what uh, Spain has been doing uh, with the people that, I mean, it took them, you know, how many hundred years since the Spanish yeah, Inquisition? So maybe, <laughs> maybe in 500 years. Well, uh, sooner, no, but, sooner than but, later, hopefully. But yeah, no, yeah, so you're yeah. totally right. Yeah, it's a, like this, I guess the, the point of bringing this all up is, uh, you know, these issues that came about and like what were, you know, at the time, like in, you know, the, the, the height of the war and whatnot, uh, like these resolutions and whatnot, uh, they inform like the current modern day discourse uh, a great deal. So, uh, you know, those those who are expelled wanting to return and whatnot, um, like that's definitely a, a sticking point to this day. And yeah, it's not and just I, the original. And I, and I yeah. think that's I think that's such a fun conversation. I haven't said anything in like 10 minutes because that was such an interesting conversation you guys just had. Um, because I was having this conversation with another lawyer the other day and I was saying I was going to do this podcast. And he said, you know, you're not really a refugee after 70 years. And I thought, huh, that's, that's kind of valid. And, and, you know, I hate to, uh, to uh, say it in this way, but what Daniel was essentially saying sounds like, hey, you guys lost the war. You have to move on. You can't just like camp outside and, and, hope, and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. But in the same sense, there is a sense of like wanting justice. And I, I don't think that two state solution is ever going to happen just based on what I've read so far. But that well, would be uh, we haven't gone to resolution. Oslo. Like it gets it gets more hopeful from here, though. <laughs> it, uh, gets, it gets slightly more hopeful. It's, it's yeah. a roller ride. But um, yeah, okay, we, we just got past all the massacres and, and displacement. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, the, um, next, the next thing I'm looking at sorry, is the Suez crisis. So that doesn't sound too promising, you guys. <laughs> oh, so very briefly, um, yeah, just ahead. note, though, I think the, the definition of refugee and stuff, I think it's worth noting that, you know, these Palestinians are. And like almost like something like two million people like living in actual refugee camps, uh, and whether or not it's the the other neighboring countries' responsibility to uh, absorb them is is a huge question. Um, you know that like should be like wrestled with because, uh, yeah, like I, I guess it's a similar issue with like Syrian refugees in Turkey to this day. Like, are Syrian refugees in Turkey like ultimately like going to become Turkish or whatnot? Uh, yeah, maybe but, after some amount of time, but the idea is is that there would be some place for these people to return to, and that's I think you know kind of it's a, it's a major sticking point, like we said, for the current. Mm -hmm. There also it also is yeah. worth worth floating that the amount of refugee Arab populations throughout the Middle East, the the Palestinians are not on the top of the list, and and again the the sort of mainstream pro Israel view, which I mostly share, is sort of saying, hmm, well we know that all throughout the history of the world people have not looked upon the Jews favorably. Jews have been persecuted for our religious views, 
We've been persecuted for our ethnic or quote unquote racial views. We've been persecuted for our economic views of controlling the banks, our cultural views, controlling the media. So now that Judaism is in the form of a political movement, Jews are also hated for our political views. And all of these cases, you know, there's there's a reason why no one's talking about Bosnia and Syria and Turkey. I mean, people obviously are, but the amount of fanfare that Israel gets and the amount of just utter contempt that the wider world seems to have for Israel, not saying, and, and I don't want to be misconstrued with saying that all criticism of Israel or even all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but most Jews see the totality and just sheer disparity of how much talk Israel gets. And, and you know, one interesting point, point here is if you actually look at how often the UN condemns Israel's human rights compared to all other countries, it is a level of magnitude of more criticism for Israel than every other country put together. So most Jews just see this and they're like, okay, this is just every form of historical anti-Semitism, but just now it's taking place in the form of anti-Zionism. Well, I think what's worth noting, though, is that this particular, you know, conflict has been going for so, like, if we start back from, you know, the historical origins, I, I don't think that's where the conflict certainly began, but uh, at least the the initial sort of uh, unrest and, you know, going to the war, like, just back to the war, that's more than 70 years. So the implications of, of this whole issue haven't been resolved. And I think because it's been on public consciousness for so long, it's, you know, it's likely going to be at the forefront because the events from the past are still very much, um, you know, like at the front of mind uh, because of the current day events. So, I mean, were there a resolution or were there, you know, some type of situation other than just limbo, which I, I think we'll get further into the description of uh, shortly. I, I think, you know, the, the the amount that, you know, this gets criticized compared to uh, you know, the conflict in Syria, which uh, I, I mean, you know, the last like five to 10, or the really last 10 years, I think we've almost just come up on the 10th anniversary of it. I mean, you know, there's been there's been tremendous, uh, you know, work being done in, uh, with different governments and, and that whole arena being populated. But just in terms of public consciousness, I think there's something to be said about the uh, the amount of time that this has been, you know, like at the forefront, just based on history. And I mean, not to say that there's you know, a lot of sensitive stuff at the center with holy sites and whatnot, but um, which are probably relevant for the recent uh, sort of uh, tensions. Yeah, let's see. But, let's see. Let's keep strolling along so we can get to the uh, modern day issues. Because um, I don't want people to lose thing. hope before they, before they get some sort <laughs> of... Uh, um, my next event here is a Suez crisis. Suez crisis? That sounds right. Um I have an invasion by Israeli, British, and French forces of Egypt under dynamic new pan-Arab leader Gamal Abdel Nassar. Nassar? That sounds right. Um, and this is just an Israeli, and Israel actually won this conflict, uh, but there's no political resolution, obviously. Um, let's see. Yeah, and, and not, to, not to, you know, throw shade on the, the Suez crisis, because it is, it is definitely an important historical data point, but it, it, it's not in the top... 10 or 15, I think, most important. Thing. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. I think okay. it, it maybe just informs like the geopolitics of, of why this is important. Yeah. Um, because natural, I mean, we, we all remember a uh, Bodie McBoat face. No, I'm sorry. That was, the, that was a different boat. Uh, the, uh, the SS Evergreen and, you know, just the yes, impact yes. to the globe <laughs> from the Suez. To, so. to be fair to you, this is the largest, um, or to be fair to the author, I guess, this is the largest, uh, this is number six, and it's from fifty-six to seventy-three. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, so that also further Arab-Israeli wars. 
Okay, uh, and he just outlines a, a couple more wars. Um, yeah, so but if, if you're seven is going to be the most important war there. Oh, okay. Well, that's helpful. Let's see. The conflation of June 67 with major consequences. Well, that sounds right. Uh, six days of fighting, Israeli forces destroyed the armies of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, and occupied vast new tracts of land in the Sinai Peninsula, Gaza Strip, West Bank, and Golan Heights. Israeli paratroopers also took East Jerusalem, which included the old city, home to holy sites such as the Jew Jewish Western Wall and the area known to Muslims as Al-Haram, Al-Sharif, and to Jews as the Temple Mount. Stunning military success for, for Israel. And of course, we just gained a whole new land, a lot of new land. Um, any, any details you want to you wanna talk about on that one? Well, you want to start? Um, I mean, 1967 borders tend to be uh, what people refer to, or what most, I think, Palestinians refer to as like what they would hope to be the basis of their state. And obviously it's, it's been pared back quite a bit, but um, well, I guess uh, that's, I guess where occupation uh, really truly began where land that, you know, prior to uh, 1967 uh, was, you know, under Arab control, uh, Israel basically got all of this land as a result of their uh, winning um, against the Arab armies um, or, and whatnot. So that sort of, you know, left the question of like, they have all this land, what do they do with it? Um, and, and I mean, that brings up other like legal questions related to quote unquote international law. I say international law in quotes because I tend to be a realist as it uh, pertains to geopolitics where, you know, at the uh, state level between uh, nation states, there is uh, certainly anarchy and that these uh, supranational organizations are, uh, you know, they build consensus and stuff, but there's no um, ultimate uh, requirement aside from just, you know, other countries getting mad at you. Uh, for not participating or not like agreeing to so but i mean wait Wally, law, do you yeah. mean do you mean that countries dunking on each other on on twitter doesn't uh evoke <laughs> i mean to say you know <laughs> yeah yeah i i mean that's like a the, the political theory espoused by like you know um a lot of folks in like the foreign policy space that i think countries that are able to do things on like you know the inter uh the international like between different nations like level um, if they can, you know, manage it uh, in terms of their like geopolitics and strategic power, uh, they can basically, uh, you know, in the same way that Russia is able to uh, invade uh, Crimea and things like that. Like it's politically like, you know, and that also violates like international law yes. in terms of annexing land and stuff. But so, I so mean, just take the, the, I'm rambling, but the, the key takeaway here is that Israel basically gained control of a lot of land here. And as a result, um, you know, any like I, th I think this is where the the phrase occupation then uh, really does come about uh, in most uh, discourse nowadays. Yeah. So let me I, I guess a few a few comments. Um, so really, the most important thing to know about sixty seven, from my perspective, is that Israel was was on the defensive. So this was not an offensive war waged by Israel to attempt to conquer new land. This was a defensive war that Israel was defending itself against surrounding countries with genocidal intent which once Israel gained the upper hand, they saw a real chance to conquer land in a way that made their borders a lot more defensible. And so if we actually look at the, you know, what Israel conquered in 1967, again, if people have a map at home, you can just Google map of Israel before 67 and map of Israel after 67, they really expanded their borders and created a buffer. Because again, Israel is tiny, about 20 Israels fit into California. So just to give us a little measure of just how small this, this country that we're talking about is. And so Israel was very vulnerable to attack, 
especially when Israel didn't have, let's say, the West Bank. I think at its thinnest point, Israel was under 10 miles wide. And so extremely vulnerable. So from Israel's point of view, and here's where we get into very divergent narratives. Um, and and I actually have something in, in my view here to, I think, uh, piss off everyone a little bit. Um, Israel, once Israel won this land in a defensive war, their perspective was, well, why the heck should we give this back and just wait to be attacked again? Because actually six years later, in 73, Israel was attacked again. And it's my view that if Israel hadn't conquered the land in 67 to create the buffer, Israel might have actually been destroyed in 67. I'm sorry, in, in 73. Um, but the important point when it comes to, to occupation, and here's where I can kind of upset, upset everyone to some extent, I am not willing to entertain the notion that Israel is occupying the land because the land was illegally occupied by, by Jordan after the 1948 <laughs> war came in and you know, said this land in the West Bank is ours, you know, even though under international law it wasn't. And so when Israel conquered it from Jordan, that was sort of, quote unquote, no man's land. So Israel's presence in the West Bank is not an occupation of the land. Now, I am willing to entertain the notion that Israel is occupying the Palestinian people. And I think that's something very different. And I think, you know, as sort of a quote unquote liberal Zionist, I, I really do think that Israel's policy in the West Bank towards the Palestinian population really does need a change for a whole host of reasons. But I think when, when people use the term occupation, just like, you know, almost every other term when we're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, people have these, you know, big sweeping terms. And I don't think they actually understand enough about the various data points in terms of the politics to actually understand what they mean when they say occupation. Someone's just like, oh, yeah, Israel's occupying Palestine. And then if you actually push them on that, like, okay, well, what does that mean? I don't think they'd be able to give you a comprehensive history. Yeah, so I think it's worth noting, though, that uh, when it comes to, like, questions of, uh, you know, control of territory and incorporating that territory, uh, that is something that is explicitly, uh, like, forbidden, like, by, like, the UN Charter, which, uh, you know, it's it's obviously not, like, binding, like, you get scolded by the United Nations, but it seems like that's uh, primarily what the UN mostly does, um, because it obviously has limited enforcement, like, capability and things like that, so... Uh, but I mean, you're right. Like Jordan did formally annex the uh, West Bank after the 1948 war. Uh, and, it also, but, and, and, and importantly, it wasn't recognized by the international community. Right, right. Um, but I think like as it pertains to the modern discussion, though, uh, you know, it was not fully uh, I, like as it pertains to the modern discussion. I think that the question of occupation and annexation is most salient after uh, 1967, uh, because that's what informs things currently. But um, and, and what, what informs like peace processes and whatnot. Um, but in terms of like what area is supposed to become like, you know, a Palestinian state, uh, you know, it's the 1967 borders that people tend to uh, sort of all agree with. Um, or I would say that's like ultimately forms the basis of everything. And then thereafter uh, further pairing back. But um, yeah, I mean, like the question of like defining occupation and what is okay. I don't know if the, the, the distinction between it being a quote-unquote defensive war uh, really does make a difference in terms of uh, gaining control of land and that being uh, sort of like allowable in our sort of modern nation state, like sort of international post-UN system. Has it been like, were it to be like a hundred years earlier, you know, it probably would have been like fair game. Uh, this is also, least, I mean, it's a different, yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, in terms of like, you know, being, being a realist here, you know, mm -hmm. and, and again, you know, listeners, I implore you to do this. I mean, just look up quotes 
of what the heads of Arab countries were saying they were going to do to the Jews before the 1967 yeah. war. I'm not saying that like the strategic interest was not there for yeah, Israel yeah, no, no, to maintain no, no, that no, buffer no, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, but I'm, I'm saying the, the very notion of like the pure sort of legality under international law of like occupying land that you, or effectively like ruling over and incorporating land that has been conquered through combat and through just, you know, general warfare. I think that's yeah, where yeah. No, the so term just, occupation just, comes just from. To, just to sort of, I guess, re recontextualize what I was going to say. I wasn't saying, therefore, Israel had a right, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was saying that, you know, to sort of tell Israel after 67, hey, according to, you know, the, the fine points of the law, you actually can't be here after the entire international community basically failed to stop a genocidal war against Israel is like, imagine if you are, you know, beating me up with a stick, but you happen to be standing on the sidewalk and I'm on the grass and there's a sign saying, don't stand on the grass. And a cop comes and gets mad at me because I'm standing on the grass. I mean, that's, that's sort of how Israel feels here with the international community. It's like all these genocidal wars, the international community like doesn't say anything. They pass, you know, meaningless resolutions. And then Israel wins these wars in a defensive war. And now Israel is, you know, quote unquote, occupying, you know, certain lands. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, Israel, so terrible. I mean, right, but that, like, you know, but international law and, you know, the, the sort of dichotomy between nation states certainly is, is different than, uh, you know, I mean, the analogy that was described right there. But I mean, you know, it, it is what it is, of course, where you let know, me ask you this, Wally. Let me ask you this. The, what, yeah, what, sure. would you, what would you like to see have happened after that war? I mean, like I said, the the historicity of like all of these events is not my like area of expertise. But I mean, just I, I think the the key point to uh, underpin is that this is when uh, when people refer to occupation, uh, that's yeah. kind of I, th I think the the key point to drive home is that occupation, quote unquote, began at this point in like 1967, um, as it's like understood, like and 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 most discussions. Yeah, I mean, today. I'm looking at the map. Yeah, uh, and the map is yeah. It, that's a huge gain of land for sure. Uh, I went ahead and Googled the map that Daniel was referring to, and that is, I've never seen this map before. Yeah, and, and also an important point. I mean, it, you know, it's a huge gain of land, but Israel very early on, you know, was, was willing to trade this land for peace. And this is actually what happened between Israel and Egypt, where about 12 years later in the late 70s, you had the Camp David Accords where Israel and Egypt formalized the peace treaty where Israel gave back the Sinai to Egypt, Israel actually had similar offers to Syria with the Golan Heights. Syria said no, which is why Israel has formally annexed the Golan Heights as, as they should have. Um, and in terms of the West Bank, Israel's actually offered it to Palestinians in a whole variety of peace treaties in 2000 and 2008. And it was, it was also said no. So at a certain point, I mean, this is sort of the mainstream Israeli view. It's like, well, what do you want us to do? Like if we just leave quietly, you know, the you know Hamas is going to take over. I mean, that's what happened with Gaza. Israel unilaterally left Gaza because they wanted to, you know, to use the the terms "quote unquote" end the occupation of Gaza. So Israel left, and of course they were, you know, greeted by an international terrorist group. So Israel, although Israel that didn't happen until it's worth noting that Hamas's election win didn't happen until like a few years later. Um, but yeah, in any but case. In any case, like what I think would be the ideal situation here is ultimately for, you know, territory like to be, uh, you know, obviously bilaterally uh, like given back. But I think the, the ultimate question is, uh, is that is Israel like right to occupy? Uh, I mean, at this point in 1967, it's a different situation than it is in the present day. 
I mean, there's certainly the case to be made, like you said, of, of the strategic importance of, you know, maintaining that, you know, control over like this West Bank and what uh, over the West Bank and other areas. But I mean, the key point is that in terms of like uh, the, the, the implications for this all, I think that's where, you know, the, the yeah, the and, and listen, be I, yeah. I, I can tell you, you know, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll only speak for myself, but I, I know that that Israel, you know, a, a lot of Israelis feel like this also. Israel was not happy about the current situation. I, I don't yeah, think yeah. anyone's happy about it. So, but I mean, like, the, but historically, though, I mean, this is how we got there. I think that's what yeah, I. Yeah, no, no, but 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 it's in, so. Yeah. So just just to recap, I have I, I do have a lot to say though about the current stuff. So I will, maybe yeah, yeah. we go chronologically. Well, so, but go ahead. Yeah. So let me. I guess just just you know, last comment. You know, it's important. You know, this is how we got there, and how we got there was Israel defending itself in a genocidal battle against surrounding Arab countries, and then Israel attempting to throughout history actually have peace deals and have them be rejected. That, yeah, so I'm, I'm very surprised because I did not know any of that history and that is not included in this article. So people reading this article. Oh, you need uh, a, a whole volume, I think, to get through that. But I mean, you're yeah, right. well, like, it is, it is, no, it is the I result, think, it is the result of, of war and conflict. And but yeah, I, I mean, yeah. There was, I'm not, you know, as a third party, I'm not upset with, a country winning a war and taking land. I mean, that's how the, that's mm-hmm. how the world works. That's never, uh, you know, I don't think that's a, uh, that's never been the... a, a big issue for me because that's just how, and yeah, and I take your point of like, yeah, but this wasn't like the 1500s. This was like, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, I understand. In a, in a modern nation state system, I think that's where this is like the key, The I think where people take a front. But yeah, I mean, you sure. know, the question of, of, of being able to control the land and, you know, incorporate it and or indefinitely occupy it. That's like a, a different situation because, you know, we're, we're here today. Yeah. But, and I'll also, yeah. I mean, I'll also throw out my... Like it, it is what it is, though. But I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I'll also throw out my my view here. And, you know, maybe, you know, we'll eventually get to this is my my preferred solution. I mean, sorry, sorry, Gustavo, because you said earlier this was impossible. But I, I still am holding out for a two-state solution. And I can kind of talk about why and, you know, both practically and... I, I yeah, we're almost modern. we're almost yeah. to modern yeah. times. Well, okay, let's so, get to modern times. Yeah. I think we have this yeah. is probably where I think the most salient discussion would be. We're um, almost there, but I think that this you know we've been we've been chatting for almost a little bit over an hour. I think that's been very important context because I didn't really know, and I'm assuming most of the listeners to this had no idea about the history that got us here, and I think that was really important uh, in understanding where we are. So let me go to the next. So that was six. We just finished talking about six. There is one more before we're talking about 1996 to the present. And really, seven is only talking about um, Israel's military, Israel's military power against demonstrators um, and and basically, you know, stone throwers uh, being gunned down by Israeli military, uh, leading to a 1993 deal uh, by I don't know who Mr. Arafat is shaking hands with Robin on the lawn of the White House. And I'm sure that's a, that's a huge event. Yeah. Um, and that's really it. And then it talks a little bit about um, the talks failed because Israelis, and this is one view, were unwilling to trade land for peace, which is what you said is the opposite. Uh, and another one is that Palestinians preferring war to peace were unwilling to accept any realistic deal offered to them. Whichever perspective, so this, the author really doesn't take a, a side on this. He just says that was one perspective than the other. Whichever perspective is correct, the negotiation shut it to a halt in 1995, 
when religious Islamic extremists angry at Robin's peace moves shot him dead in Tel Aviv. And then you have chaos, extremist groups on both sides. Uh, basically, you have suicide bombers and you have just more awfulness. And then in 1996 is when uh, I'm not going to attempt this guy's name either. Benjamin somebody. Yeah. Uh, comes into power. And that's really where we're, we're going to pick up, I think, in, in more modern times. Yeah, so I think the the, the key moment here uh, is uh, Yasser Arafat basically uh, signing the Oslo Accords, which uh, sort of are what is now underpinning the sort of the goal for like the two-state solution, um, which, you know, ultimately would hope to resolve the conflict by making like, you know, a Palestinian state as well as uh, Israel, which already is a state, um, and, you know, end occupation, have like clearly defined borders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of like hurdles in the way, uh, which is its own, I think probably podcast episode, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a, I, I that's a good kind of a overview of, of like the historical sort of last number of years or last number of decades, really. Yeah. And, and I think what, what is important to note, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, Oslo, you know, there are entire libraries filled with books about Oslo, but, but I think one of the important points that maybe listeners don't, don't know is that what Oslo did was Israel and the international community both recognized the PLO or then the Palestinian Authority as as a a government over the Palestinian people. So today in Israel, in the West Bank, you have a situation where people and Palestinians that are living in the West Bank are ruled over by both the PA and then also in terms of their, their military law in terms of Israel. So it's this really complex and, and really awkward situation, which is why it really needs to change. Um, but the situation where if you're a Palestinian living in Ramallah or Bethlehem, or, you know, pick your, you know, favorite city in the West Bank, your day-to-day might go through the PA, but sort of for bigger deals, for more, you know, general geopolitical situations, you're under Israeli law. And it's just not an ideal situation for anyone. But Oslo at least paved the road for self-governance of the Palestinian people. And what we have now is actually only the first step of a three-step process. Sadly, we never got to steps two and three. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say is that, you know, there, there, there is the sentiment on the Palestinian side, you know, as you read in the article, Gustavo, that, that Israelis weren't willing to give land for peace. Um, but the, the, the problem was Israel made a, a series of offers, and usually the reaction to Israeli offers are, well, we don't want this. We want much, much more to the level where no Israeli would think it's reasonable. So then Israel says, no, sorry, we're not willing to give up. You know, uh, I'm being a little bit dramatic here, but we're not willing to give up the entire country. And so then they sort of leave the negotiation tables. And then the the narrative is, well, Israel wasn't willing to give up land for peace. But in terms of the concrete deals in the last 25 years, and, you know, I I hope people look this up. There there have been some good ones uh, that I think, like, you know, if the two-state solution uh, were to be like most in the Palestinians favor uh, some of the early ones. But I mean, in terms of the political like viability on the Palestinian side, like uh, in terms of what I think is politically tenable, because I mean, it's a distinction between like, you know, your national government uh, versus like the local. Like it's a it's a tricky dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I guess but but I guess that you're sort of at least semi admitting that the reason the, the, the main reason why today 2021, there is not a Palestinian state is not because of Israel. It's because of Palestinian leadership 
And well, and- I mean, it, it goes both ways. Like, it's obviously like a two sided negotiation. But I mean, yeah, like, if we're just talking about like objectively, like which deals, quote unquote, are like better, I'm not saying in terms of uh, sort of whether or not like they were the right deals per se, because again, like my, my yeah. expertise is not like the, you know, the, the, the history of, of each of them. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like in terms of which one gave the most, like there were some in the past that did give more. So mm-hmm. uh, whether or not that was the right amount of uh, sort of compromise, I think is another question. But yeah, but this is, but yeah. this is actually really sad with what, what happened in the Israeli political landscape. And, and, you know, again, uh, this, this goes for anything I say for the listeners, but like, please fact check, you know, every date or every detail that anyone's saying, you know, really with anything, but specifically with this, is that in 2000, with the, the deal offered to the Palestinians that was rejected by the Palestinians, it wasn't just rejected by Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians. Then for the next four years in the second intifada was a heightened wave of suicide bombings, of bus bombings they blew up coffee shops and pizza shops of Palestinian militants. And so most Israelis politically that were really excited about the prospect of a two-state solution and peace, and most Israelis, you know, in 2000 voted in a left-wing prime minister, all of a sudden they see a really good offer be offered to the Palestinians. Palestinians said no. The next four years they're greeted with the worst onslaught of suicide bombings in Israeli history. And so most Israelis, that's why they ended up, you know, electing right-wing governments like Benjamin Netanyahu who doesn't even really pay lip service anymore to two states because most Israelis said, well, you know, we've already tried. When we tried, we were greeted with, uh, you know, again, this proliferation of suicide bombings. So why even try? And so, you know, I don't I don't like that view, but that's sadly what most Israelis have come to. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that, like, you know, the I, I think what you described is that the second intifada was uh, a result of that uh, the, the peace process didn't yield what the Palestinians wanted, but I think it was the notion of, uh, you know, like at that point, you know, occupation very much uh, like cemented what was well cemented uh, at that point. It was, you know, Palestinians being subject to Israeli control and whatnot. So, I mean, it's a combination, I'm sure, of factors uh, of of what led to it. But um, I mean, at this point, we still have like waves of settlement building in like the West Bank and things like that. So, I mean, all of that sort of factoring in and, and, you know, becoming the impetus. Uh, for for this you know sort of uprising quite literally yeah I, uh, I guess an interesting yeah. question and and I, I I get asked this a lot so I'm I'm curious to throw it out there and I'm happy to give my my personal answer but you know if you Wally were elected prime minister of Israel tomorrow you know I mean Israel you know has its own internal political problems of trying to form a government <laughs> you so, know so you know I don't know if that would happen that's a very uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly well I, I don't know if yeah. it's more likely for you to be Israeli prime minister or for Israel to actually form a government but you know very people <laughs> actually. Get that yeah. joke. But, but, but in, you know, real, you know, in terms of this conversation, if you were elected prime minister of Israel, what, what, what would you do? Like in terms of bringing us to a solution or yeah, in, terms in terms of bringing of, us to a solution, because the, most Israelis feel like all well, try have been rebuffed. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of rebuffing and whatnot. So, I mean, it's important to recognize that there have been steps on the Palestinian side towards like uh, reconciliation. And I know we kind of, like, when, when you say, if I become prime minister tomorrow, that's going to be on the wake of like, you know, two weeks of unprecedented violence and really unprecedented <laughs> like, levels of protest. Uh, it's, it's worth, you know, not bossing. like, you know, if, if I can just ignore that, uh, <laughs> I think it's worth saying that like, ultimately, like I think efforts towards like uh, reconciliation ultimately do uh, bring back like levels of willingness to discuss. So uh, there's a study that I've, I've quoted a few times when discussing and debating, uh, you know, levels of, you know, anti-Israel sentiment of, of in terms of settlements in the West Bank. 
uh, and checkpoints uh, in the West Bank. So, I mean, settlement building, obviously, no bueno for like any peace process, because, you know, since like Oslo, like the settlement expansion has been like really precipitous, like the number of, of new communities being built on land that is eventually supposed to be a Palestinian state. That, I mean, directly undermines it in the first place. I mean, uh, I don't know if like that would be like fixed through land swaps, but at the very least, like new settlement construction and new land acquisition, that's like obviously uh, bad. But otherwise, I think like easing of, uh, you know, like occupation type restrictions. I mean, uh, the current like sort of human rights situation in terms of uh, lack of freedom of movement, which I think violates some Geneva Accords uh, principles, as well as uh, you know, just generally having like different legal systems where if a particular like person in the West Bank commits a crime and uh, like in their Palestinian versus them being like in Israeli, uh, you know, th- it's a different legal process. I mean, these aspects here are are really, uh, I-, I think, some of the most glaring things. And I know like uh, very credible organizations such as like Human Rights Watch have likened this current like occupation situation uh, to being apartheid. So uh, like if you do want to see an ultimate like improvement in uh, what is, you know, currently like the level of tension in the conflict, I think it really does come from uh, like the Israeli side, because Israel has, you know, almost absolute power in this case, like, you know, Israel, like being like the occupying force here is, you know, able to uh, control the situation much more than like, um, like Fatah or, you know, PLO basically can, uh, because like they just hold like, really, I think a lot of the Palestinian population feels under the constriction and the grasp of, uh, you know, Israeli policy and Israeli policymakers. And that's mm-hmm. not even, you know, getting to the Gaza issue. Because, yeah, yeah. So I yeah. guess just a couple of points, because yeah. I actually probably agree with a lot more of what you said than, yeah. than, than you might think. There, there are a couple of points of... Oh, no, I mean, I don't doubt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well... Yeah, uh, there, and and yeah, one thing to note, just in terms of conciliation, though, uh, very briefly, sorry, Daniel, uh, is that, uh, you know, even Hamas, like, freaking, like, who are, you know really like committing war crimes left and right. Uh, and, you know, I'm not even talking about like the current conflict um, because that obviously opens up a whole other can of worms of, you know, discussions of war crimes on both sides and things like that. But even Hamas in like 2017 has agreed to, uh, you know, principles set out by the PLO that, you know, outline a two-state solution. They obviously did not like recognize Israel as like a Jewish state or anything like that. But, you know, if even Hamas can get behind some semblance of a, you know, like acquiescing to the, you know, PLO's leadership on these external matters and going with whatever they agree with. I think there is like, you know, there, there certainly is potential for there to be some type of, of hope. Yeah, with, and I think that's with, just not like, you know, I, I just don't know how like likely that is. And we're about to come up on uh, Palestine, like ele- or Palestinian elections, um, you know, this month of May, but, you know, those obviously were postponed. Uh, and things like that. And I think that that was an attempt for the PLO to really cement its own legitimacy, uh, or I should say like Fatah to cement its own legitimacy because they, I think, were last elected in 2006. uh, And they haven't had an actual call for election since then. So I think they're probably confident. Uh, I know Hamas, I I don't think they have very much support, if anything, like I don't think people actually like Hamas, even much in Gaza, but I mean, it's it's all they have. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, it's really all they have because uh, you know, like we think of Hamas as like a terrorist organization, but they are technically their government that runs like, yeah. you know, health ministries and things like that. So yeah. obviously they have a militant wings. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you made a number of points that I just want to sort of respond to. One, you know, sure. with, with Hamas, it's tough to know what Palestinians are thinking about Hamas in Gaza, because quite literally, you know, there is no freedom of speech, politics, movement or, or anything like that. 
Um, so, you know, the last time there was a major political group and leadership against Hamas, a lot of them were, were killed or, or expelled by, by Hamas. In, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what you were saying in terms of, you know, if, if you were made prime minister, I, I, I identify with a lot of those, those solutions. You know, certainly, you know, in, in a two-state model, Israel has to stop building settlements. Um, I, I, there, there was an excellent article um, by Micha Goodman that he wrote an article for The Atlantic, and it was called Eight Steps to Shrink the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And he sort of lays out a, a series of steps that he thinks Israel could take today that won't affect Israel's security, but will make life better for Palestinians in the West Bank. Because in, in terms of Israel, that's always sort of the trade-off is to what extent do you care about security concerns or to what extent, you know, I mean, really any any democracy or liberal, you know, democracy or really any nation state in the world deals with these questions of, you know, to what extent do you limit humans' freedoms when it comes to security? So in America, we have these questions too. You know, there's all these questions about the debate, like, should we get to a point where the government is mandating, you know, vaccines? It limits my freedom, but it obviously makes society safer. So so a lot of those conversations are happening internally in Israel also. Um, but it's important to note that, like, you know, the Israeli policy discussion is one that the Palestinians are subject to. Like, you know, Palestinians ultimately, uh, you know, just as a result of them being occupied uh, or, you know, what is eventually hopefully like going to be their country to be occupied, uh, that is you know, something where they don't really have a say in just because it's Israeli military policy, um, you know, that dictates and, you know, government too, but uh, it's Israeli uh, sort of quote unquote occupation forces or IDF forces. Uh, you see the term Israeli occupation forces used a lot by like the Palestinian side mm-hmm. uh, to underscore, which underscores the fact that, you know, the, the Palestinian, uh, whether it be freedom of movement, like, you know, uh, access to natural resources, uh, you know, water resources actually is one very contentious thing where I believe as a result of a lot of the land being held in, uh, or a lot of like the area, ABC, et cetera, land, um, you know, having had, uh, like with Israel controlling it, uh, you know, that closes up a lot of, uh, opportunity for, you know, economic development by accessing those resources and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, I, so, I mean, like these types of things just, uh, where the Palestinians don't have agency over what is supposed to be their own country, uh, mm-hmm. is what I think is like the, the biggest issue here. And I mean, uh, it really does, I think, especially nowadays, you see a lot of commentators and not even just people who are like, you know, leftists, uh, describing, you know, this situation as apartheid where, Israel controls like Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, life in many, many ways, but the Palestinians don't have any sort of form of recourse, whether it be through, you know, electing officials that can, you know, change their conditions or not. So it's one population, I think, you know, having control over another. And I think it yeah, is so if I can, like done, it's done under the name of security, but I think like the, it is at the expense of their freedom. Yeah. So, Sorry, so, sorry so, to ramble. Yeah. yeah. So, so a, a few important points. So, so one, I mean, not, not that this is sort of a get out of jail free card, um, but but most people in, in Israel will just keep pointing back to like the fact that you're right. Almost no one in Israel, either on the left or right, is happy about the current situation. What what they would point to is that Israel's tried to get out of it in 2000 and 2008, and they were they were answered with no. So so from Israel's point of view, which is actually why why I really like this article that I mentioned before, the eight steps to shrink the conflict, because his view is right now, just given the political reality we're not going to be able to have a Palestinian state, but this at least lays the groundwork for maybe in the future. But but just in terms of the other points, in terms of apartheid, you know, I've, I've definitely seen the reports, I've read them. 
what I think people get wrong when they when they talk about apartheid is that we have a situation where Israeli citizens are made up of Jews, Palestinians, of the Palestinians, they're Christians and Muslims. And in the West Bank, we're talking about people who aren't citizens. So it is definitely problematic that there are Jews living in the West Bank intermingled with Palestinians that have a different law applied to them. I definitely do not think that is good, reasonable, ethical, et cetera. And, you know, sort of the dominant liberal Zionist position is that that we don't like that. Um, but to call it apartheid, you'd have to you'd have to find a way in which the legal differences are more along the lines of ethnicity or religion, whereas let's say hypothetically the 20% of Israel's population well, what, just interject. Thought, sure. yeah, the 20% the, the of Israel's population who are non-Jewish, Muslim, Arab, Christian, whatever they are, if they wanted to move into an Israeli settlement in the West Bank, there's nothing technically stopping them. I mean, they might not be greeted so so happily by, by the people there, but 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 in in terms of legal talk, there's nothing technically stopping them. So there's no apartheid based on anything that has to do with ethnicity or religion. It's just legal differences of who does who's a citizen and who's not. But I mean, that is still ultimately apartheid, though, where you know, being effectively uh, being like governed by a population under whom you have no like voting rights or recourse or even like legal recourse and like separate courses and stuff that effectively i think is what is is the broadest issue here and i mean you you don't have to take it from me i think the the um the the human rights watch report recently uh i think was it was very like carefully deliberate in in its definition of 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 quite everything so um but i mean the the situ ultimately i think like you know what you do also like underscore is that it's not like something that is 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 a uh, as a good situation, for lack of a better word, it's, uh, yeah. you know, like, like it's, it's it, yeah. You like, are not going to hear from any Israeli that what's happening right now, 2021 in the West Bank is good. What you will hear, and, and the majority of my view is, the situation right now is terrible. It's not Israel's fault. I still think, as, as somebody who really believes in Zionism and the best of Zionist values, I believe that Zionism and, and Israel should have an ethical responsibility to say, okay, listen, even though we've tried in the past, and even though, you know, all of our peace efforts are rebuffed, we still have a ethical, you know, need to actually fix the situation because there are genuine human rights problems. But, yeah. but, but, but yeah, but, but at a certain point, the, the Israeli view is, is sort of just like, what are we supposed to do when we, when we offer peace, they say no, when we unilaterally pull out of land, Re, you know, regional powers like Hamas takes over. And if we stay in the same situation, everyone calls us apartheid. I mean, like, those are very specific, like, instances, you know, in the case of pulling out of uh, out of Gaza, like, you know, almost 20 years ago, in the case of, uh, you know, like, other instances of, like, easing restrictions, like, you know, any attempt for peace is met with rebuff. I mean, that doesn't take the current, like, sort of contextualization into account. Like, there's certainly going to be a way uh, that might eventually be possible to to have that done. But, I mean, Ultimately, like the current situation that has resulted from, you know, an accumulation of like, you know, Israeli policy choices, uh, it's a pretty, I think, you know, deplorable uh, human rights issue. So just to give some examples uh, of, of the day to day manner, I think just the, the, the question of checkpoints within uh, territory that is supposed to be like governed by Palestinians, uh, Israeli military checkpoints, basically like uh, disrupting the movement of people that you know, in and of itself, uh, you know, causes tremendous impacts to 
uh, whatchamacallit, you know, whether it be economic activity, just general civilian life, uh, things of that nature. And it's it's really, I think, sometimes quite sporadic. Uh, the I, I just remember speaking with one student who uh, was a Palestinian, I think, college student at, at I believe, Berzeit University, um, which uh, was apparently about 20 minutes from her house. And she was saying that on a normal day, the commute would take 20 minutes if there were no issues at the checkpoint. But, you know, a couple of days a week, that would take two or three hours. So, I mean, you know, these types of questions, which are, you know, uh, uh, these types of decisions, which are, are made for the purpose of like Israeli security, uh, you know, really don't do much except really just uh, underscore resentment. Because in terms of situations like this, uh, it really just does control freedom of movement where, you know, it's not a situation where it's like a checkpoint going into like, you know, Israel proper, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it, it's, 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 it just seems like uh, measures that are imposed that may have probably once have had a justification, but, you know, there's just the residue of this, uh, you know, that original like policy choice that has resulted in this physical infrastructure that disrupts uh, the life of, you know, day-to-day -day Palestinians. And yeah, so just, and, you just, know, to, just to and, be and, clear about, yeah, oh, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Uh, I was going to say also like, and just the nature of like, you know, the separation barrier, uh, you know, deviating from like the green line and things like that. Um, so, I mean, that's like a lot of stuff that uh, I, I think it is pointed to, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think well, economic control and just like, like the, the number of exports that are allowed and just access to, you know, natural resources, I believe area C, uh, correct me if I have that wrong. Yeah. Uh, area C, C being uh, like the West bank that like, uh, like Israel has like de facto control of basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, just, just to sort of contextualize, because I, I agree with, with, a lot of what you're saying, but maybe for different reasons, which which I find really interesting. Where I, I definitely like listen, the the, the checkpoints are, are not the ideal. Um, I, I you know I I cannot imagine how horrible it is to be a Palestinian and not knowing if your commute's going to take 15 minutes or two hours. I mean, you know, I, I was going to insert a joke about 405 <laughs> California traffic, but yeah, I, decided <laughs> I know that, that at least that at least is predictable. Yeah. And it's but, not subject to like, you know, like a super yeah, intense no, no, no. ESA so, type you're, situation. You're, you're, you know? you're totally right. And yeah. it's important to note that before the Intifada, there weren't checkpoints and there there was a lot more freedom of movement. And, you know, you even talk to Israelis that live throughout Israel that they would say, you know, a normal Sunday activity for them would be getting in the car, going to Ramallah, going shopping in the market and then coming home. There were no checkpoints, no security walls, no borders. And what ended up happening, again, you know, Israel didn't create the security barrier in 1967. Israel created this security barrier in response to the Second Intifada, where not a day went by in Israel without a bus getting blown up, without a shooting happening, without a pizza parlor getting blown up. And so Israel's only recourse at the time, and you're right, maybe the reality changed now with, with in terms of, you know, surveillance and technology and Israel's ability to secure themselves through more technological means, you know, we can have that conversation, but at least at the time 20 years ago, or, you know, a little less than 20 years ago, when Israel put up all these checkpoints, they really did result in like a tenfold decrease of any type of suicide attacks. So maybe somebody from a, you know, objective ethical point of view can say, well, still, it wasn't justified because of the limitations of freedom. And like, fine, you know, this is, this is, you know, a, a, a fair argument to some extent, but in terms of Israel's not happy that the checkpoints are there either. And if Israel can get a guarantee tomorrow that there were going to be no more suicide bombings, no more shootings, Israel in a second would would take down all the checkpoints and all the barriers. 
Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the key distinction, though, uh, to note is just how restrictive it is. So, like, for example, uh, there are some places where uh, the uh, separation barrier uh, will literally bisect, uh, you know, neighboring villages or even like within the same place. Um, so where like the separation barrier does take in, like, of course, if you impose such draconian measures as to like completely limit like freedom of movement and like basically build a wall around whatever place you're trying to regard as a fortress, of course, that would like show a decrease in, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the violence that would have otherwise ensued. But like the question begs is that, you know, this is like pretty permanent, like physical infrastructure that, you know, it creates a situation where there's now, you know, no incentive for this occupation to be lifted because, uh, you know, if, you know, Israeli security is maintained by the system of occupation, uh, which it pretty much, it more or less is, except for these types of flare-ups, uh, you know, it, it creates a situation where occupation is no longer that big of a concern, where, you know, it's working, it seems to be uh, something that could actually continue in perpetuity until, you know, the Palestinians come to some type of, you know, eventual like acquiescence, but, you know, given just the, the train of events and just the manner in which I think a lot of Palestinians feel like they've been robbed of dignity uh, just by result of, you know, being governed by like a foreign military presence effectively, like that just does not seem quite so likely. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I think that, like, like I said, I think in the past where, you know, if you want to see like, you know, I, I, whether a two-state solution is even possible or not, I mean, that's another question, but, you know, seeing a two-state solution would have to, you know, I think be met, uh, that would like that would only arrive after, you know, conciliatory steps are taken to sort of ease like the pressure on Palestinian, uh, you know, like freedoms and whatnot uh, that is currently in place. But, um, you know, I, I think like the, the the one thing to note is like uh, just just how quite uh, obtrusive or uh, uh, intrusive, I think the, the occupation can be, um, you know, I just gave like a very mundane example of like traffic and stuff. I mean, uh, you know, those checkpoints, too, are not like met with, they're not just like chill TSA checkpoints. I think there's one case of a uh, prominent American uh, lawyer and, uh, you know, a Palestinian rights advocate who literally had a cousin who was like uh, shot at a checkpoint for not like slowing down quite at the right time. And I think that cousin literally passed away like the week before their wedding. So I think it's not lost. I think the human toll of, of you know, these policy choices. Um, but I mean, just in terms of the economic like impact, I think there are some estimates that I've seen that, you know, if Palestinians were to have control over Area C, which is like an administrative division that, uh, you know, it's, I guess, how would you describe it, Daniel, as a uh, sort of buffer between like Palestinians and Israelis? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's a little, you know, we yeah, can it's, spend the next one. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most essentialized way, just for the purpose of example. But, you know, just in terms of economic resources that might otherwise be available to Palestinians, uh, you know, if Area C were to be under Palestinian control, I saw, I think, one estimate saying, you know, that would be a close to 70%, like, you know, uh, increase in, like, GDP, like, even possible just by having, like, that land available. So, I mean, when we talk about, you know, impacts of occupation, it's not, like, uh, you know, without uh, sort of, like, impact on, like, Palestinians. I think if if one, if we were to just put it in, like, in the sense of, like, you know, if your country was effectively being... Uh, you know, militarily controlled and you didn't have access to land that otherwise would be yours, uh, you know, to a, a very large percent of land that otherwise would be yours to, you know, farm on or do whatever on. I think there would obviously be a lot of resentment that would, you know, mm. make any type of reconciliation really, really difficult. Uh, yeah. So, so, so yeah. I guess, I, you know, it's, 
it, it's almost funny. And, you know, and I know we've talked about this, you know, not, not on this podcast before where, yeah. where I, I agree with almost all of your, your conclusions, but I, I disagree with a lot of how you got there. Um, where, where I definitely think that that the way forward, at least from from the Israel point of view, is again to to lower a lot of these harsher measures and rolling back on a lot of these checkpoints and a lot of other things that interfere with with daily life. I, I still, in my tracing of the history, I I can understand step by step why Israel did what what they did. You know, either post Oslo or post Second Intifada, and and I think that Israel had had good rationalization. I, I think. You know, again, and, you know, as as somebody who, who disagrees with the current Israeli administration and much of what's been happening in internal Israeli politics in the last generation, really, is I don't like the sort of knee jerk, you know, move move to the right of of Israelis. But but again, you know, uh, it, the, there, there seems to be this this narrative and, and I, I don't think you share this necessarily, but this narrative out there that like Israel is just hell bent on making things terrible for the Palestinians and like you know, all of these things, whereas like each of these conversations and, and we have to take into account both the Israeli, you know, the very real Israeli security concerns and also the very real restrictions on basic human human rights of the Palestinians. And this is where it gets really complicated because I feel increasingly like the the discourse on, on really both sides, but but here I'll speak more on the anti-Israel side is they don't pay attention at all to Israel's security concerns. It's almost like, you know, Israel has no right to do anything in terms of security as long as bad things are happening to the Palestinians, even though, you know, maybe it is all Israel's fault, maybe it's not all Israel's fault. You know, most people that are anti-Israel will have no idea how, how it got to the current situation. But but it's it seems to be this situation where, you know, and and just, you know, in terms of in terms of recent events, you know, we, I, I, you know, we can bring up that Israel and Hamas have sort of been in in an eleven day skirmish. They actually just called a ceasefire, but who knows if that'll thank uh, goodness. Actually, yeah. actually hold. Yeah, you know, definitely thank goodness. Who knows if that'll hold by the time this podcast comes out? Hopefully, it does. Yeah. But one of the things that I've been seeing all over social media is just comparing civilian casualty rates and people saying, "Well, oh my goodness, you know, the civilian casualty rate in Gaza is much higher than in Israel." as if that data point tells us anything about the ethics of both sides when I think it's well when it's when it's well documented that Hamas uses human shields and implants their rocket launch sites in civilian neighborhoods and Israel is obviously spent a lot of their money developing defense systems like the Iron Dome to protect their civilians as opposed to using it for for aggression so there's a lot that that I think you're you're definitely right about and I think a healthy disposition yeah, towards I think, Zionism. So yeah, let me just finish this thought. Like a healthy sure. disposition towards Zionism has a lot of criticism of, of current Israeli politics and government. And I'm sort of, you know, top of the line to, to criticize all that. But it also really does need to take into account the the security concerns of, of Israelis. Yeah. And I think like, you know, when we talk about those security concerns though, I mean, you know, the like I, I don't think I've even brought up like Gaza properly like, you know, discussing the current, like, sort of the, the fighting going on that has just ended. But, uh, you know, in the West Bank, like, as it pertains to, like, Israeli security, I think a lot of those measures, like, that may have once had, like, rationale and justification, they seem to only just be, the, like, they, they, in effect, just exist now. I mean, perhaps, like, you know, if we want to quantify the improvements of, you know, ex, like, each checkpoint on, like, security versus, uh, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the attack on liberty that like, uh, and freedom of movement and things like that, that they might, um, like represent, um, 
like it's a it really doesn't seem to be like an equal sort of uh how to say like a trade-off like you know israeli security uh you know is greatly going to be bolstered by this but you know it's only a minor inconvenience to palestinians and this and that um but i mean the question of whether or not like you know in an occupied like place basically like one should be allowed to sort of do this in in perpetuity like if it's a you know a temporary situation like perhaps that is one thing and it makes it certainly like it mitigates like some of the the ethical issues and humanitarian issues related to like being an occupier but the the nature of the current occupation is that it really is like in perpetuity and like you're saying like on the israeli side it's like unless anything changes like you know like what else can we do and yeah. it's like well it's it's really like a, a chicken and egg situation where yeah, you know it, it has to come from somewhere and i think israel being you know the you know the actual power where there's just such a massive like power imbalance and uh you know it's the occupying power in this situation that power dynamic is unfortunately unavoidable where i think it places much of the onus on uh you know israeli policymakers in trying to sort of alleviate the situation um but i mean you know whether or not there are political incentives because you know the current occupation like sort of regime i like for lack of a better word uh it, it works pretty damn well i feel like where uh you know the 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 violence and stuff is confined to like, you know, once every few years and they're pretty good about like once the, you know, the dust settles, they're pretty good about diffusing it and then a reversion to the mean kind of situation. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, like holding, I think, Israeli policymakers accountable, whether it's like the electorate that does that or whether it's, you know, international voices. And, you know, we haven't even like touched on like the whole BDS movement, but that's kind of like a huge uh, you know, kind of like I feel like elephant in most rooms these days. Uh, but like whether it's a you know call from what, the international we, community. What what is that, Wally? I, I'm not I'm not familiar with that. Can you okay expand on oh, that sure a little thing. bit? Um, so really, really, just to 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 summarize the point, like you know, it has to come from somewhere, and I think uh, like the 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 impetus for Israeli policy to to shift on this whole question is like I, I think it really is in like Israel's hands. And, and whether but, it's just the general also, population, you know, just, but yeah. Just sorry, sorry to butt in before you in, introduce um, BDS. Yeah. It, it really, you know, again, and in, in my head, there are always two two streams of thought that are slightly contradictory, but they actually, I think, really make sense given the history and the situation. Whereas to blame Israel for the current situation, I think, is a misreading of the history. But well, of course, then, the answer is always in between. But yeah, 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 yeah. It's always in between, but again, like you know, defensive war, Israel offering peace and being said no to, then the second intifada. Like, from, from the Israeli perspective, it's pretty clear that Israel has been on the right side of most historical arguments. Um, that that said, I also, my other stream of thought is saying, yes, you're right. So, you know, things things do need to change because the current situation is is untenable for a whole variety of reasons. Um, you know, and, and I, I definitely disagree with you know, international pressure against Israel, which we can get into, I actually don't think that'll help at all, regardless of the reasonableness of BDS, but I'll, I'll let you introduce it. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, ultimately, uh, in response to a lot of, uh, you know, what has basically been like Palestinian control, like by the Israelis, uh, for, you know, many number of years, um, you have uh, civil society organizations within uh, Palestine, uh, that, made a call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. This takes inspiration from uh, the South African movement that uh, eventually was successful in uh, ending apartheid, uh, which, you know, I mean, apartheid South Africa was just so disparate and so so odious that I think it was, it was kind of a no-brainer. But I mean, you know, this too now, I think, uh, has been quite gray for some time, but I think just the level of uh, disparity and I think level of control, I think, has made 
some of the calls for BDS to be quite legitimized in a lot of you know very sensible spaces. But in short, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, uh, related to uh, Israel's you know occupation. Um, you know certain like I guess law like I think the official three prongs of the movement are an end of occupation and blockade uh, of you know Palestinian territories and uh, Gaza, etc. Uh, I think they have another point where it's like equal rights for uh, Palestinians uh, who are citizens of Israel, which I think they mostly do, but there are some distinctions. And I know access to certain like Jewish only roads and things like that. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, I haven't read recently on it, but I know that those issues are certainly there. Uh, and then lastly, like the issue of like, you know, a just solution to the refugee crisis, which is which entails like right of return and stuff. Um, and I think uh, what uh, effectively, like the, those tools of boycott, divestment, and sanctions mean like boycott of products related to occupation and related to you know, uh, you know, it's probably impossible to do a full-on boycott of Israel. Uh, and I don't know if that's even necessarily the goal, but it's probably more so boycotting well, and also, things also that are engaged in occupation. You, it also depends who you ask. I mean, in, yeah, you know, and and I'll, I'll you know preface this by saying I am against BDS in all forms, but there is there there are different types of BDS. Yeah. Where, are you, are, right, are you right. boycotting, you know? Like, are you boycotting the notion of, like, the Israeli yeah. government or the, the Israeli state as a whole, like, concept? Or are you boycotting and divesting from, you know, settlements and, like, companies that make money off of them or things like that? Uh, yeah. And, and, and so and, on and, and so forth. Yeah. And then and sanctions, opinion, yeah, being just general, like, sanction pressure. Yeah. And in my opinion, even though I am against both of these things, there's a big ethical distinction between people who want to boycott all of Israel in terms of culture, music, art, professorship, all of those things. And people who say, hey, you know, like company X actually produces the technology for Israel to do X, Y, and Z thing in the West Bank. We don't like this. Even though yeah. I'm against both forms of BDS, one, I, I acknowledge as somewhat of a legitimate attempt to basically, you know, practice what you preach in terms of, you know, being being economical and trying not to support something economically that you disagree with. So even if I disagree with that, I respect it. BDS in all forms is really just like a odious anti-Semitic movement. And it, it's it's really connected to, you know, this this attempt to not recognize Israel from the outset. It's a it's a misreading of history. And again, you know, think of all the countries in the 21st century that are committing human rights violations in magnitude of tenfold from Israel. And nobody's marching on the streets and no one's marching on college campuses saying we need to boycott X, Y, and Z country. But again, when it comes to Israel, we get so much disproportionate attention. And so most Jews see this double standard as just pointing to, you know, anti-Semitism again. That's, that's yeah. quite, that's quite a, that's quite a statement about BDS. Um, I want to, yeah. I was wondering, Wally, what, what is your take on BDS? Uh, and particularly the, the second kind, because I think I would, I would probably tend to agree with um, mm -hmm. with Daniel on on the first kind of, of boycotting culture and this and that, but I believe the second the latter example he gave is is more applicable. What is your view on that? Yeah, so I mean, like I've like full disclosure, I've been a participant in like you know some of the BDS movements on campuses and uh, at least on UCLA's campus, and uh, you know like had those discussions and stuff. Uh, I think it's worth noting that you know BDS uh, it doesn't exactly presuppose a you know solution to the conflict, whether it be like one state, two state, three state and so on and so forth, but it does kind of imply it just based on some of uh, the, the specific goals of the official central movement um, where, you know, right of return, equal rights, and, you know, ending occupation blockade, that sort of uh, sort of points to a binational one-state solution, which I think there have been like some pretty prominent voices, I think, uh, on the left in particular that have 
uh, come out in favor of that type of stuff. So I think like Peter Beinart is probably the most prominent voice um, that I've seen in like, you know, American media that advocates for this type of sort of binational one state, which, you know, that would make like, I, I think that would probably be the end. And I think most people think that would be the end of the, like the Zionist dream and whether or not, you know, Israel just like absorbs all these, uh, all of the Palestinians that are currently like in, uh, you know, the occupied territories uh, and then just makes them Israeli at that point, like, you know, that makes the, uh, you know, Israeli Jews a minority. And then it, you know, gets to the question of Israel's character as like a Jewish state and stuff. So, I mean, those are issues that I think like, you know, need to be like wrestled with if uh, that is what it ultimately comes out to. But I mean, in terms of like boycotting, divesting and sanctioning being like valid tools, uh, for governments and for uh, individuals and also other companies and investment funds uh, to put pressure or even just distance themselves from the issues of occupation and blockade. Uh, I mean, absolutely, those are valid. Like those are, you know, nonviolent forms of like protest or economic pressure, or in some cases, like governmental yeah. action or, you know, statements and things like that. Um, so just to give some examples of like, you know, like, because uh, I know BDS has been painted by a lot as being anti-Semitic, like specifically because of its implications for like Zionism, um, you know, I think uh, like nowadays there's been certainly discussions of like, are there, uh, can anti-Zionism, uh, you know, be not anti-Semitic? Like, I, I think, you know, so much of, of mainstream discourse has entailed that, you know, like uh, advocating for this like sort of one state, like binational sort of solution uh, be, and that like deprives like Israel of, you know, it's, it's quote unquote, uh, of, of basically it's right to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, also, I, I, shouldn't say, a... I shouldn't say quote unquote, because I mean like, yeah. you know, like every, every people quote unquote has a right to sell. And I say quote unquote a lot, I guess. But I mean, everyone has a right to self-determination and stuff. So, I mean, that's not like, uh, the issue there, but in any case, like BDS, uh, or at least like it's, uh, sort of manifestations in the form of, uh, like boycotts of goods. Uh, like I know SodaStream uh, was one company that had operations in the West Bank uh, and I think was benefiting from, uh, you know, some displacement of Palestinians. And then they went and got like a Palestinian workforce and stuff for like cheap labor and things like that. Um, so they, I think, were a target of boycott like for some time now. Um, yeah, and so I know Scarlett Johansson was dropped as like a, as a spokesperson for Oxfam, the British nonprofit. Uh, really, so I'm sorry, Dan, I'm just going to give a couple of yeah, examples that are pretty notable. Um, Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. Um, they have like over a trillion dollars of assets under management. They uh, made it a point to uh, remove investments from companies that were uh, doing business in Israeli settlements or were seen as enabling settlements and things like that. So this gets to the broader trend in the investment community. Uh, and the, the sort of finance world of ESG, the environmental, social, and governance questions of investments, like is your invested dollar going to places like that? Um, Airbnb recently, uh, they delisted actually um, uh, rentals that were in Israeli settlements. Um, and that was met with a legal challenge. The, the delisting was on the basis that, well, we don't want to participate and make money from you know these uh, settlements that are considered illegal under international law and have their own ethical questions. Um, but I think that was met with a legal challenge that opposed, uh, I think, some Jewish settlers uh, who are American citizens uh, sued uh, Airbnb and U.S. courts saying that by delisting uh, Israeli settlements from their platform, that was uh, housing discrimination under the FHA or something like that. So quite an, I mean, from a legal perspective, that's quite an interesting argument. And, it, and, it, and I think it works. Yeah, yeah it um, actually, I think stuck. But 
Yeah, uh, just those are just some examples, but go ahead. Sorry, Daniel. Yeah, well, just to respond. So, so we have to be really careful with with words here. And I also, I, or before I say this, because I'm always very careful, especially when I throw around terms of anti-Semitic and anti-Semitism. And so I'll just sort of like delineate a couple things, and then I want to respond to your BDS thing. So I think that BDS is B, BDS in terms of the first type of BDS, a boycott of all of Israel, everything put together, not worrying about sixty-seven lines. I believe that movement is anti-Semitic. I believe that a plurality, but I won't be precise, of the people who support that movement are anti-Semites, but it is very possible, I also believe, to support BDS and not be anti-Semitic. With anti-Zionism, it's the same thing. I think most anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but most anti-Zionists are not necessarily themselves anti-Semites. And so I'm always very careful to, to differentiate between things that people say or do that I might say, hey, you know, that thing that you do, that might be a little anti-Semitic, but I would never call that person an anti-Semite unless they're, of course, a general, a, a genuine anti-Semite. So I'm always very careful to differentiate between ideas, things, and movements that I think are anti-Semitic without saying everyone who subscribes to that is, is an anti-Semite. Um, but, but in terms of BDS, I just wanted to, to point out that when most people talk about BDS, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. They are not talking about boycotting, you know, Airbnb listings that happen to be in, in Hebron, you know, a place in the West Bank or Caterpillar or other companies or SodaStream. They really are talking about this first type of, of BDS. And, and listen, again, I don't I don't support this for a variety of reasons in terms of boycotting. Uh, boycotting. I, I, would, I think I would disagree but, with, you, with your me. characterization, though, but sorry, go ahead. I just want to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so I just want to say, I, I, I definitely don't support the idea of boycotting any, any part of, of, of Israel or Israeli companies. But that said, you know, I, I do have Jewish Israeli, you know, pro-Israel Zionist friends who I know are careful not to buy anything if, if they're ever in the settlements. So that it's definitely a position in which even among the Israeli Jewish pro-Israel electorate, there are people who don't want to be buying things from there because it's against their political views. And so that, in my mind, is very different than a when people just say BDS without specifying of what they're talking about, you know, in terms of this specific company because it's bad versus the Jewish state as a whole, which, again, really reads like something out of Protocols of Elders of Zion of like, we need to boycott the one Zionist state, but we just happen to not boycott any other country in the world. Like we buy products from China and Iran and all these other places. I'm sure if North Korea sold stuff, we would buy it too. Like, so, so you can see why most Jews see a full throttle boycott against Israel as just some type of anti-Semitism. Let's get, let's get Wally's, hang on, Wally. let's get, let's get your response to that. And then let's get some closing statements. I, I got to land this plane. Ooh, yeah, that's a great point. You know, maybe we need a part two, because I think we, we might need a part two. Yeah, because I think discussing, I, I know the current events of like the last two weeks are kind of what I've been following most closely and, and things like that. But I mean, you know, now that the, those are hopefully, uh, settling down and things like that where where we might be coming on a good situation. But um, in any case, yeah, in terms of like, is BDS a, a valid, you know, form of protest? I think absolutely. I think, uh, you know, whether it's boycotting every single thing to come out of Israel or Israeli academics or uh, like academic conferences and things like that, like those all beg questions of like, uh, are they just discriminating based on, you know, them being Jewish or Israeli? Or are they, is there some type of other uh, sort of more underlying basis, I think they absolutely can have like, you know, a, a great deal of legitimacy as a, like a tactic if it's an academic conference that's uh, hosted or done by like an institute that 
you know, is a participant in like occupation type stuff or is otherwise like, you know, used to pressure like a foreign government where, you know, civil society, like the people who are, you know, civil individuals, but not part of the government, um, you know, might face pressure for like the government's policy choices. I think a wholesale boycott of Israel does not necessarily mean you are anti the state by any means. Um, but I mean, it might be a question of being anti the state's policy. And to your question about boycotting, uh, you know, Chinese products and things like that, like just for example, with like the Uyghur Xinjiang uh, uh, sort of treatment, and you know, th that's literally one example I know you gave of, uh, you know, why is that not an issue that gets a lot of attention? And it seems like Israel is the only thing that does get attention. And I mean, you're right, like it is like Israel does get a lot of attention, I think, in like the public consciousness. But like I said, I feel like that's because of the nature of the conflict as being, you know, older than, you know, most of, I don't know if it's older than my grandparents necessarily, but it's certainly like, it's very old. Uh, yeah, something that's and, been around and, for some time. And, and yeah. Yeah. And um, this is definitely but, an area in which, you know, we're going to agree to disagree because, uh, again, just the, the from the Jewish community's point of view, again, like when, when we table on campus, you know, to sort of, you know, attract people to our club and we have an Israeli flag, we get, you know, sort of the worst slurs thrown at us, genuine anti-Semitic slurs. Whereas if the, imagine a Chinese student group cabling and they have a flag of China and imagine me going over and saying some anti-Chinese slur, I mean, that would just be seen as the worst thing ever. I mean, rightfully we so. Don't consider, we don't consider, yeah. The anti, like, there's a lot of like anti-communist party, like anti-CCP sentiment uh, that is, you know, against the Chinese communist party, I think that, you know, is levied and, and is discussed, but I don't think like uh, that's like anti, like, the country of China per se as a whole, but, but again, I mean, when, you know, when we talk about like the, I, I, cause I just want to point out like, you know, when we, we bring up double standards, I think it's uh, a great deal of, um, you know, like our perspectives of just like what our information sort of intake is. I mean, I just happen to exist in a very sort of uh, like a progressive -y lefty sort of activist segment of uh, whether it's just the internet or I think it's actually just people I know in real life. Um, you know, there is, is constant like condemnation of, you know, the, like, I mean, just the case of China, because I think that's probably like the otherwise currently one of the greatest, like, you know, human rights abuses like going on, like China's treatment of uh, like of the Uyghur, you know, ethnic Muslim minority um, has been like already like been met with sanctions. And, you know, there's already legislation uh, that has been passed in the U.S. Congress, um, as well as, you know, a lot of professional, uh, I wouldn't say professional, but uh, industry groups that are, you know, trying to uh, certify that cotton coming from Xinjiang is not the product of like yeah, forced but, like but, Uyghur but again, labor, second, things like second. that. We're, we're again still if we you know consider the UN, we consider activism mm -hmm. on campus. Activism, yeah, is, it doesn't compare at all. I mean, Israel gets gets more quote unquote crap than every other country. And and the last important thing, you know, but that's because it's something yeah. where it come it's directly supported by American policy and where American and I think this is relevant for all of us as Americans that. We seem to have been giving a blank check to, I mean, you know, and this is where we'll disagree. But Wally, this, is, um, this is also happening in Europe. This is also happening in the UN. Yeah, I mean, but... So they're not, they're not if, the UN's not giving But these are all places that have also, like, already been condemning any number of other things. So when we talk about human rights abuses, for example, and like Syria, that, you know, have been going on as in relation to the civil war there and things like that. That has been, you know, I think, I, I truly believe that there is some level of, like, uh, maybe just the, the level of focus uh, and, and not uh, perceiving one to be as like active, whereas there's been quite a lot of activity going on, at least in the human rights activist-based circles that, yeah, that me, I tend to be Yeah, let me step in and, in, and so. stipulate, stipulate with Daniel that I think that 
the fact that Israel is so on the limelight, I think they do. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you could ask a lay person of any capacity what is going on with China. I don't think they could name the minority group that you just discussed. I don't think that there is almost any other country that gets the kind of spotlight that Israel does. Um, I certainly don't see any local protests like I do for Palestine. So I will, I will agree with Daniel. Yeah, I do agree with Daniel that it does get a lot more uh, limelight, but I, I have to agree with Wally that that is because you have arms deals going on with Israel and it's on the news, you know, and you have a lot of publicity and U.S. backed resources that also appear on the news, especially when the government's unpopular. That's really going to make the news and it's going to ride along with Israel being unpopular, as you can see with the Donald Trump administration, you know, talking about Jerusalem and how mm. unpopular that became. And now you have the Biden administration also uh, engaging in aiding Israel. So I think that brings in a lot more limelight and a lot more uh, of a spotlight, I should say. But I, I will agree that no other country, no matter how how awful their human rights violations are, gets the same the type of coverage that Israel's been getting. Yeah, and yeah. And, and and I'll just say two two quick things: it, is that you know this this is not just America about America's aid to Israel. This is also true about about the UN. Again, the UN passes. 45% of the UN's Human Rights Council's resolutions since its formulation, 45%, almost 50% were against Israel. And again, if, if anyone here thinks that Israel is perpetuating 45% of the human rights violations in the world, it's probably way less than 1% if we're, if we're being realistic, e- even though they are there. So that's one. Two, it's also important to recognize just how even if one could in theory separate BDS and pro-Palestinian you know, staunch pro-Palestinian slash anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism, it is important to note that even in the last week, Jews have been getting threatened in Los Angeles, New York. There's been a threefold uptick of anti-Semitism throughout Europe. And so these things have effects on, on, on regular Jews. I mean, I personally, as somebody who is a public Jew and wears a kippah, I've been doing things that have nothing to do with, with Israel. You know, I've been drinking a coffee at a Starbucks. And I'll have people come and curse at me and say, you know, F you Zionist pig. Like that 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 happens on a relatively frequent basis. So so we do have to recognize well, you know, Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, uh and I think I've seen the most forceful condemnations coming from like the a lot of the pro-Palestine crowd. And I think a lot of it gets like conflated uh unequally where like Israeli policy choices versus, you know, like everyday, you know, practicing like or even just observant or I should say visibly Jewish people. Yeah, but, but listen, uh, like, like I mean that's a, like but, that's something that it's uh it's, it's something, you know, that deserves condemnation. But 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 the left in, in America can't have it both ways. It can't be when it comes to internal, you know, political debates in America where, you know, it doesn't make a difference what your intention is, it only makes a difference what's you what what your result is. And if I'm doing something that might be mistaken for sexism, racism, et cetera, I'm condemned for for perpetuating that. But the anti-Israel crowd gets sort of a get out of jail free card when it comes to like the fact that anti-Semitism is proliferating because of them. They're like, well, not our intention. So sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a really it's really important for people to be precise. But I mean, what's worth noting, though, is that these like the the instances of. Oh, shoot, my computer battery is running low. Oh, God. Okay. This is, this no, is yeah, we, we really, we really got to land, we yeah. land this episode. Yeah. We can do a part two. Yeah, uh, if, if yeah, we want to talk I, more, I think, I think just... there's, there sounds like there's a lot more there. So I'm happy to yeah. do a part two.
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess the, that's, the, yeah, let's the get closing statement, and I think both you guys. I don't think my uh, my computer battery will, will allow me to go much longer, <laughs> but just to respond to you, Daniel. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the question to be answered is that is like what amount of anti-Israel uh, sort of activi- like activity, activism uh, is, uh, you know, like uh, accurately described as anti-Semitic and like what level of it is legitimate? Because there are certainly like voices, uh, you know, who come out on the anti-Zionist side who I don't think like a lot of them would not be considered quite uh, like, like you said yourself, like anti-Semites and stuff. So, I mean, it's like the, the, yeah, yeah. the precision of description, but I want to just say very briefly that this has actually has great implications for U.S. policy choices because, uh, you know, as we, uh, I think a lot of the listeners and readers may not know, or I guess it's all just listeners unless they're reading podcast <laughs> transcribed, pardon me. Uh, but I mean, there's, I think a number of states, almost at least a dozen, I want to say, that have passed uh, uh, legislation that either penalizes, or I don't think it criminalizes boycott of uh, Israel, but there are, uh, for example, like I know Texas has a law that uh, requires government contractors to agree not to uh, participate in any boycotts of Israel. So, I mean, there's there's implications for our own, uh, you know, uh, like whether or not like, you know, free exercise of uh, participation and, you know, voting with your dollar and not supporting XYZ companies uh, results in penalties uh, that are, you know, like uh, determined by like state governments and whatnot. Um, and I mean, a lot of individuals that I know personally, and I mean, even actually myself, I've recently been accused on like the internet. Of, like, I think someone recently tried to dox me uh, for, you know, just discussing the question of like BDS and settlements and things like that. Um, and, and things like that. So like a lot of these, uh, like, it's a very like, you know, touchy subject, needless to say. And you know, there's a lot of care that needs to be taken um, in, in sort of people's advocacy of, uh, you know, whether uh, methods of bringing about improvements in the Palestinian uh, human rights situation. But I mean, I, I, I think it goes without saying like any form of whether it be anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or uh, anti-Arab or really any form of, uh, of hate that emanates from this uh, is really it's necessary to speak out against. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I have other points to say, but like, I, I don't want to take the floor too much because I know I, I, I do ramble, um, but pardon me. So. Well, you know, I should have probably uh, corralled you guys a little better, but it's so interesting that I'm learning so much. So I've been, yeah, I've been and I ramble really, on my own podcast and these people are people, used to be rambling, so I'm sure they'll be fine with you guys yeah. rambling too. I mean, How many drinks have you careers. had, <laughs> You know, I only had three glasses of scotch while you guys were okay. talking, so it's not oh, something a ton, but I am happy. I'm happy. And uh but I do got to make this not a three-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe get, it might be worth get... splitting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, I mean, I, I've had a few episodes that are about an hour and a half or so. This okay. will probably be the longest one. But if we do a part two, I won't split it into three parts. So let's sure. get Daniel's uh, let's get Daniel's closing statement, um, and then we can figure out a, a part two if you want to do that, and then we can go from there. Sure. Um, so I really, I mean, I really just wanted to say thank you, Gustavo, for hosting this. And thanks, Wally, for uh, always being willing to talk about these issues. I think there's, you know, a quote that resonates with me a lot where, you know, you don't make peace with people you agree on everything with. Um, and, and I think it's a really important point when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because there's two really strong divergent narratives, two very strong divergent, you know, places of blame on, on both sides and real, you know, historical traumas. On, on both sides from the other side. But if we really do want to forge a path forward, I think, you know, the more dialogue, the better. And, and I think it's, you know, it, it, it's really sad 
that when you are trying to, you know, portray a pro-Palestine agenda, you get quote unquote doxxed and, you know, called an anti-Semite. And when I try to support a quote unquote pro-Israel agenda, I get cursed out and threatened in coffee shops, right? That's, that's really terrible for both Israel-Palestinian conflict and society as a whole. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. I just want to, and and I, I realize that I didn't end so quite quite so eloquently as as Daniel did. So I just want to say, I think with these types of you know, uh, you know, global conflict uh, type questions, ultimately we we should focus on the fact that these are people. I think everybody is a human, and everybody simply I think wants to live well. And I think that it should be noted that that's really the end goal for really everyone, whether it be like Israelis or Palestinians or uh, anyone tangentially related. Um, so. Like, you know, hopefully these types of discussions are, are going to hopefully get us closer to that uh, end goal of, of people living well and peacefully. Yeah, no, I, I certainly hope that um, my listeners get through the, the podcast and get the context. Because I think that there was a lot of information in this conversation that um, I didn't come across with any reading. And I certainly didn't uh, realize. And I think it does give a much more complex view of the situation. And um, and I think I, I, I'm kind of on the same conclusion that you've ended up at, even though, uh, as Daniel's pointed out, it's been for different reasons. Um, I think that there is a there is a strong argument for Israel's current position, and I think that there's a many great arguments for changing how they're dealing with it right now in modern day. Um, so yeah, so I think we we'll, we might have to do a part two. We'll see how it goes. But um, I appreciate you guys coming on. This is by far my longest podcast, but I, I hope people appreciate it. You guys are donating your time to educate the masses. Yeah, so thank thanks, you so much. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for coming on, so and we'll be in contact. Awesome. For sure. All right.